Richard Holman. What a fantastic guest we have on this episode. Tom Jensen, the man behind Ostfront Publishing, which you may not have heard of, but you'd be impressed if you looked into it. Uh, you're going to definitely find out what they do. And we get into not only the games that Tom has designed, but more interesting yet to me is that he brought his own uh, cycle of game design theory for how he approaches game design all the way to the point of publishing and releasing it and supporting it after it's released because this is not the kind of guy who's just, you know, theorizing about making a game or has sort of this endless cycle that he's stuck in of trying to work on something. He actually has made games. He sells them. People are playing them. And he knows what to do. He knows how to actually put out a finished product, get it into people's hands, and uh, keep them coming back for more. So it's different. It's different than a lot of guys on GDG and a lot of indie guys out there who always try to make that one darling that never gets finished. <clears throat> uh, sorry, I got some stuck in my throat there. I don't know why. <laughs> no, he's he's great. We talked about his game design approach and the way he simplifies things and really just goes for the the core of it uh keeping it simple and fun and accessible he's got a great philosophy that really contrasts a lot of other people that i've seen on tg and on gdg and it's valuable you guys got to learn from guys like this i have to learn from guys like this after talking to him i've already felt my pace increase i've already felt myself wanting to race to the end, you know, not cutting corners, but just knowing what you're trying to accomplish and getting it done. I'm, I'm not going to ramble too much about it, but needless to say, I think by the end of this, you're going to have some good, solid insight from, a, from an actual guy who owns a company and is putting these things out. Great personality, a good head on his shoulders. Find him on the Discord and uh, talk to him, listen to him when he gives you advice, because unlike the rest of us, he actually knows what he's talking about. That's no, I'm, I'm just kidding. He, he knows what he's talking about, but uh, he's just going to have a very different perspective that I really respect, and I hope you guys do too. So without further ado, here's the interview. All right, so I'm here with Tom Jensen. He's part Yo. of... Uh, yeah. Say hello and uh, tell us about your company and how long you've been at GDG and what brought you there. Uh, well, I'm Tom Jensen. I am the lead game designer for Ostrom Publishing, uh, game design general I occasionally see on TG. Uh, it never really lasts as long as I'd like it to last, but I try to drop in and see what people are up to and <laughs> occasionally, occasionally post a thing or two. Yeah. And so from there, you just saw that uh, there was a Discord and decided to jump on. Yeah, I think there was a post about um, like a podcast, so I hopped in and had a look around, and here I am on the podcast. All right, good idea, because I was definitely the one that posted that, <laughs> and nice. I was hoping to get some more people that were just lurking around there, maybe, but uh, wanted would would like to promote something, would like to actually, you know, get into their what they do and share it with other people in a way that's 
a little bit more user-friendly than the GDG threads that notoriously die after a couple hours. Yeah, so sad. I cry every time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've uh, definitely appreciated the Discord channel because of that, the ability to uh, just have an actual ongoing record, an ongoing chat constantly. So I would recommend yeah, anybody... through that. This is great. It's a good, good uh, resource to have. Yeah. And I would recommend anybody else that's listening to this, if you have something that you want to promote, if you have a project that you're working on now or that you've done in the past that you want to talk about, I love um, you know people deconstructing what they did in the past and, and sort of the post-mortem analysis of things. That's great. I'm also happy to just talk to people who've never done anything and, and are just trying to work through it for the first time. But now we have somebody here who's put up tons of stuff. I mean, you go to the website for Ostfront Publishing and and look at the library. I'm very impressed. So tell us a little bit about what you put out in terms of, it seems like uh, from what I saw, it was mostly war games. This wouldn't be like a role-playing game sort of. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, we're mostly historical war games. So anything based on a real conflict um, and uh, MO is kind of like represent something realistic as simply as possible. Um, it's all about having fun, designing games. It's all about having fun. So we try to make something that gives you a feel of the period, but also is nice and simple and fun to play. And yeah, I think we have about, I don't know, 10 different games and maybe uh, 10 or 12 uh, army lists for, for our main game, Ostfront. And yeah, there's probably some other random bits and pieces. I don't think I've counted them recently, but th there's a few, a few different, uh, different flavors there. I find it fascinating that you would pick something as generally obscure and and you know hard to get into as a historical a specific real life historical battle and then juxtapose it by making it like a really accessible uh tabletop game what made you want to do that instead of creating your own world i mean and and sort of approaching it from this like did you did you think to yourself that's like a, a neglected market or was it just what you're interested in and you just decided to make games about it. Yeah, it purely comes from an interest in history, really. I'll be reading a book about uh, Stalingrad or something and thinking, wow, this would make a great war game. I've got to write a World <laughs> War II war game. And the same, the same happens over and over again. I'm reading a book about uh, the Soviet-Afghan war or about Chechnya, and I'm like, I have got to war game this. <laughs> and I'll, I'll go look for a rule set, and there'll be nothing. It's like, oh, there's no rule set for Chechnya, or there's no rule set for the Soviet-Afghan war. So I'll be like, okay, I guess I'll write one. That is such... A a fascinating reaction to reading about these conflicts. Yeah. It's like, man, is there a game I can play in that does this? Yeah, exactly. And in and, and historical books, you read all these like really fascinating little tales like, uh, I don't know, um, a guy's flying an F-14 and his radar fails during the Iran-Iraq war, and you're like, no game would usually represent like your radar failing, so mm, I've yeah. got to implement that. And uh, you get all these tiny little tidbits. Um, I just find real life is so full of, um, so like full of information, like... If I was to create something myself, I'd never create as much backstory or as much depth as real life, I feel. That's true. So, you yeah. wouldn't. Uh, that's why notoriously people end up recreating genres of fiction when they're doing game design because all they know is these handful of movies or stereotypes. Right. So you've got... Exactly, yep. You're basically cheating by going to real life stories and <laughs> taking the most interesting yep. things. Totally cheating. There's a wealth of like first-hand accounts movies, like books, even books in audiobook form. So I can sit there and, and like when I was writing my World War One game, I just read as many first hand accounts as I could. Like what was it like actually being on the ground in World War One? 
and you get all these great ideas of like just things that can happen. Um, it's totally cheating. You just go through and say, that's cool. That's cool. I'll put that in the game. I'll put that in the game. And then it's all about thinking, how do I actually put this in so it's not too complex and so you can actually play it? And that's where you kind of have to be kind of put in elegant design kind of solutions. How do I represent messengers or how do I represent um, fog of war, that kind of thing? Those are the challenges in the game design, I find. So I haven't actually read any of these, but I'd be very fascinating to check them out. But would you say that the the games are designed to recreate a sort of specific actual campaign and the risks of that campaign in an actual war? Or is it like these are the playing pieces and it's a very replayable game where um, the players have sort of choices as to how the whole campaign or conflict works? Because usually in yeah, real usually... life... Go ahead. Yeah, usually the latter. We um we like to provide the historical pieces and let the players uh, make their own army lists and make their own kind of um uh, combinations. So there is a lot of replayability. Uh, that's kind of the way we like to go. Sometimes we'll provide like um uh, specific scenarios or specific historical battles. And in the missile threat, the modern air combat game, we did provide like specific uh, theaters. So if you want to play early war Vietnam, you can play that. But there's still a lot of uh, freedom. Uh, if you play early war Vietnam, you can take you know, a wide variety of different aircraft and you can kind of choose whichever you like. Uh, we really like to give players a lot of options, especially in historical games where there's a lot of like different units. You want to be able to take a, you know, an army of all guys on motorcycles or an army of tanks or an army of planes or whatever it is you want to do, or a mixture. So are these rules for playing with models that you would get elsewhere or are these actually box sets of things as well generally miniatures rules so we just uh, provide a book that tells you how to play the game and and we expect our players to already have armies or to buy armies uh, of miniatures so then that's uh, another usually... that's another benefit of using real life things is that people can use existing models that of course exist because there are people love exactly. models yeah that's right and there's there's many historical um miniature makers, there's, there's all these competing companies, so the price is usually pretty good. Uh, we started with, um, when I was first designing games, we, I just used, like, risk figures. So they were a nice <laughs> stand-in figure that you could you could make them anything, really. You could make them a Napoleonic game, or uh, you could pretend they were ancients or whatever. But eventually we found 1 to 72 scale uh, miniatures, which are really cheap and available at the local toy store. So we just go down there and buy all these World War II um, 1 to 72 min uh, miniatures, and just, yeah, that was kind of how it started. And then use World War II troops in the Chechenian War if you have to, because why not? Uh, yeah, you could. You probably could. Um, not enough AK-47s probably, but uh, you, you could <laughs> if you wanted to. You could use army men or you could use any kind of ministry you like. Uh, I did find nice, usually uh, gaming a conflict, I like to make sure there's actually miniatures for that conflict. Right. Um, oh, that's I did, a good did idea. find Chechen miniatures. There's a lot of the Chechen miniatures. Yeah. That's a world that I'm completely unfamiliar with, so I find that interesting. I know that, you know, I know something about like Warhammer and that kind of tabletop miniature thing that has is deeply baked in fictional lore and the mm -hmm. hobby around painting them and all that kind of stuff but you're obviously going for a really accessible uh sort of low barrier of entry sort of format yeah we try to um we want people to have fun that's the whole that's the whole reason i create games is to have a fun playing a playing a game and i wanted to share that with people so that's the reason why i started publishing them online i thought hey if i like this game maybe Maybe someone else will, so let's get it out there. Basically, one of the first things I saw uh, when you came to GDG's Discord channel was this design of a theoretical game. Uh, an air, what is it called? Airstrike? Yeah, that's. I think that's a working title. I think I, I thought about bandits or maybe 
my workmate suggested flight fights, which I thought was <laughs> kind of uh, hilarious. But yeah, probably the name may change, but yeah, it's kind of a simple air combat game. And you're pitching it, you know, in the channel, you're pitching it as basically, um, well, I think right there on the image, it's like air combat for the whole family, you know? Yeah, and I exactly. think somebody right away mentioned like, how does that make sense? You know, it's for the yeah. whole family, but it's about dog fights with jets. Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. You won't get a housewife playing that. I think someone said. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and yet I have played, I have played against housewives with my, um, my other simple, uh, air combat rules. So it does happen. <laughs> you know, I think if you approach it the right way, and if you, especially if you can approach it with a sense of humor, hmm. that's a, that's a very inviting thing because one of the, the main things that actually, in my experience, turns off women, housewives, the even just casual guys that, you know, have, it's about the sort of self-image that if you take yourself really seriously and then this really serious game comes by, people just don't want to associate themselves with something that is a little bit too, um, I don't know what to say. It's just intimidating and it's... Exactly, yeah, that's right. Um, I, I always think that people play board games so that they know that kind of complexity pretty, pretty well. They can easily handle your rolling dice to see what happens, moving counters around. So when I design a, a, a game for a family game, you've got to think about that kind of level of complexity. And if you can introduce it to some people in five minutes and then have them playing it while you leave the room, perfect. I think that's about the right level of complexity you want. Wow. You know what? Uh, as somebody who's designing a role-playing game that seems to never end... <laughs> the uh, idea of this really simple system that you can create and instruct people on that quickly, do you think of them as as basically being sort of a, where would it be on a spectrum? Because I know there are a lot of miniature war games, and I'm not really familiar with them. So where would you put your games in terms of complexity and, and replayability and I guess also uh, creativity of people being able to configure things how they want to? Right. Uh, well, there's a bit of variety. Like, we have um, Position, which is an air combat game, a family air combat game, uh, which is uh, very simple, and, like, you can play it with a six- or seven-year-old pretty easily. Uh, and then, kind of in the middle ground, we have things like um, a Chechen Wars game or, um, say, Ostfront, which are kind of about average level. Uh, and then we have much more complex things like Missile Threat, which is modern air combat, where you can you have to choose your own missiles for each little aircraft and kind of know what a... AGM-88 harmers and know how, about radars and SAM sites and, and what kind of air-to-ground missiles do what. And, and so there are some very complex ones out there. Um, but we always try to keep it manageable. So no matter how complex it should be, you should still be able to ease in. And the basics should still be simple, even if there's a lot of uh, extra kind of um, extra sections you can use. So something like position, you said you could play that with like a six-year-old. In my mind, yeah. that means... Almost everything is random, and and the replayability just comes from surprises. You know, you don't know what's going to happen next. Is it? I mean, because you don't want to be punishing a six-year-old for making a a random or poorly thought-out strategic decision, right? So, no, it, of course not. Um, positions great because uh, it's free form. You um, everyone has a stack of squares of paper, and you draw a little arrow as to where your aircraft's going to move. And, but you all do it at the same time in secret. So <laughs> it, everyone's going, oh, what am I going to do next? And what's he going to do next? So you all draw a little arrow. You just really you sent me your... a picture of how it looks. And that is hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's very much based on the, on the game Wings of War, which is almost the same 
the same thing, but except they use cards. You have a card with a little turn on it. And everyone, they play their three cards, whatever they are, and the aircraft makes a few little turns. But this is more like, um, more freeform and much more simpler than Wings of War. Wings of War has some uh, complex or semi-complex damage rules, whereas position is just like as simple as possible. If you're hit once, you're damaged. If you hit again, you're destroyed. Um, but this is great with, with the family. Like I played this with, um, you know, seven, eight, nine year olds and, and my parents as well. So let's say, um, two, me and my dad versus my, um, eight-year-old brother and 12-year-old sister um, on each side. And, and then they love it. They, they'll they go away and have a strategy meeting and say, what are we going to do? And, and me and my dad are sitting there going, oh, let's just try not to shoot each other. I'm sure we'll be fine. And then my little brother and sister come in and just annihilate us because wow. we had no plan. <laughs> it actually works. Yeah. It actually works, yeah. I think their plan was um, as soon as one of them gets damaged, try to destroy him. And so I think I got damaged first, and they both ganged up on me, and that was it. Then it was just two versus one. And, yeah, it's – um. It's something that people can understand easily. I, I, um, I'm you literally showed me my... two JPEGs, and I understand the game now. Yeah, yeah, and and all you need <laughs> beyond that is like, uh, you can shoot a certain distance directly in front of you, and you roll the dice on a five or six, you hit the enemy, and that's that's it. That's amazing. I really respect yeah. that kind of uh, variety because one of the problems, and I know this is from going to GDG channels and obviously the Discord as well, that there's sort of a the opposite problem happens a lot. Or I should say people don't realize that they can make games that are simple and essentially one small mechanic is what we would call it usually in a bigger role-playing game kind of thing where you want to simulate a million different things and then each thing has its own subsystem and set of rules and things. And it's like, okay, you could maybe simply teach that mechanic or that simple rule set. But what you're essentially doing is saying that is an entire game that is fun on its own make that yeah. the game, release it, and if people just want that one experience, that's all they need is that little cheap yeah. rule book. If one mechanic is good enough, uh, I think it could be you know, effective as a game, even if it's a short game or, or just a quick, fun game you can play in a couple minutes and then have a rematch, um, Yeah, which I think Position does pretty well. I stand on the, the shoulders of giants, though. This is very much Wings of War. Uh, but slightly simplified and more freeform. So I didn't come up with this system of, you know, drawing a little arrow and then moving your aircraft to the end of the arrow. Uh, right. I just kind of made it more family-friendly and kind of repackaged it a bit. And oh. I even say that in the description of the game, I'm like, you know, it plays like Rings of War. So, yeah, I can't claim to have invented it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that, you know, you're giving credit where it's due. I, obviously, I wouldn't know. But the the interesting thing is, you know, from a, as a creator, I'm interested in your mentality when you're approaching projects because um, there's that sort of endless cycle of creativity that is easy to get trapped in, and you mm-hmm. don't seem to be bound to that at all. You're you're thinking. I mean, obviously, you have your own company, and you've you've even uh, you said you created a Facebook pages for like all of your products, and you're trying to stay in contact with the people who bought your games and you yeah. update them and things like that. Exactly, yeah. I always try to provide an email address and let them know there's a Facebook page because I find it's really important to get feedback. And often the best playtesting doesn't happen until you release it and then people see it on, say, Wargame Vault and buy it. And then they play it and they go, hmm, this this doesn't quite work or, or that doesn't quite work or, or this unit is missing. And so often I get the best feedback after the game is released. Uh, in fact, there's a good saying... A game is never finished, it's only released. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a couple of variations of, of that uh, saying. Probably is, yeah. <laughs> and so let's say that you do get some feedback on a game and you're sort of 
you recognize that that person's probably right and you want to update something. Do you update? Uh, I imagine you have basically a PDF file that you update on that Wargame yep. Vault site or something. And then do you offer that person, you know, a free re-download of it? Or how, do, how does that individual person get? Uh, Wargame Vault is awesome in that when you update the rule set, you have an option to email everyone who's bought it and to update everyone who's bought it. Oh, nice. So, so you, I can upload the new version. I check, you know, email and update, and it'll email everyone who's bought it, and they automatically can download the new version, which I think is amazing. It's an excellent system, uh, right. and it means, you know, I can get up to four or five different versions. I only keep one version at a time on the Wargame Vault, so it's not confusing. Um, but that way, people can always get the latest without having to pay anything. Um, and, I mean, if I was to redo a, a game completely with a whole new look, uh, like a version 2 or something, I'd probably make a new product. Um, but this is a good way to keep people updated when minor things change or typos or whatever. Right. That is that is definitely a good feature of that uh, platform. Do they, I, judging by the name Wargame Vault, um, I imagine that they don't they don't do RPGs or anything like that. That's probably specifically for games that are miniature based. Uh, so, yeah, so Wargame Vault is an offshoot of Drive Through RPG. So they're the main one who do handle RPGs okay, and yeah. everything, and uh, they just have this Wargame Vault kind of separately, so that you don't have a lot of like uh, war games polluting the RPG uh, <laughs> area. I, I don't know how it works, but yeah, the, they have the separate area for, for war games. So yeah. Okay, because I'm familiar yeah. with drive through RPG, but I've, I've never okay. actually seen... Actually, I might have seen something from Wargame Vault back in the day, but... Um, yeah. I've Looking never... at this, they have drive through cards, drive through comics, drive through fiction, and all these other kind of offshoots as well. It's just Wargame Vault has this other, like, uh, we're not a drive through we are Wargame Vault kind of well, um, You know, it's probably going. smart, you know, get, make sure that your core audience can find exactly what they want, and the yeah. offshoot will be for that specific audience as well, because I do consider those, I mean, it's pretty obvious that they're, they can be pretty vastly different audiences, even if you'd think that there'd be some overlap by heroics and adventure and, and little miniatures on a tabletop and stuff. Philosophically, yeah. there's a big difference between what you're trying to get out of both of them, would you ever? Yeah, it's true. Would you ever try to? Um, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons itself is famously derived from tabletop war games. Yeah, yep, that's right. Do you ever get tempted to be like right. you do all this research onto these into these conflicts and stuff? Do you ever get tempted to sort of spin one off into an actual RPG and sort of you live the daily life of it, or are you sometimes? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I do play role-play games myself. I do play Dungeons and Dragons, you know, once a week. Um, I played, I've run traveler campaigns, so I do, I do love RPGs. It's not something I like shun or anything. Um, but yes, occasionally I do think, you know, this would make a great RPG. And every time in between setting, uh, in between campaigns, I'll suggest to the other players and be like, well, you know, we could run a historical campaign. And it was just like, nah, nah, sorry, Tom, I'm not, not that keen. I'm like, oh. So I always try to slip it in there, but you know. Um, we have a, a, a forever DM who's amazing, so we just kind of let him do. He always has a great idea that um, everyone's like, wow, that sounds awesome. Whereas I'm like, hey, let's refight, um, you know, Napoleon invading Russia in 1812. And it was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. It doesn't sound that cool. There's not a lot of backstory there. And I'm like, oh, well. Yeah, that's no. Sad. But that's fine. <laughs> Can't cast your spells in that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be great if everyone was familiar with the setting and had read, like, a, a, like um, 1812 by Anthony Beevor, oh, sorry, not Beevor, um, Adam Zamoyski. Like, if they'd read a few of these books, that they'd really, they'd know the setting. But you can't really argue with a fantastical, awesome campaign that has all this kind of cool plot hooks and kind of cool setting. Uh, I don't know, the goblins reincarnated some ancient 
mage tank or whatever, and it, and it was like, <laughs> wow, this sounds amazing. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so that's that's fine. That's no problem. It's a testament to your particular group that you know people aren't interested in jumping ship to something else. I mean, a lot of a lot of people would be happy to uh, switch over to somebody else's miniature war game if they just had a better alternative. And yeah. it sounds like you've well, got we a- to. Traveler for a while, which is a nice break from D&D. A bit of science fiction there with space battles and stuff. So that was, that was pretty cool for a while. I looked into Traveler um, just as a theoretical game, a, a book that I was going to buy. I, was, I wasn't even planning on playing it, but I yeah, I wanted to research it because I heard that it had a very interesting uh, like planet generation. Oh, yeah. It's great for that, yeah. If you want to randomly generate anything, Traveler probably has a, a table for it. Yeah, and I wanted to kind of do so, something similar to that in my game. I was trying to basically create a world generator. And okay. and when I looked into just the general topic, it seemed like there was Traveler and there wasn't a lot else that did that. But uh, Stars Without Number, I think, is the other, the other one that I can think of. And maybe some of the GURPS things have uh, generators. Uh, I, I kind of just tend to like stick with Traveler, and I know the system pretty well, which is, which is nice. But there are a few other systems that... Like planet generation. Yeah, I envy the fact that you actually get these, get groups of people together. I imagine you're not playing online either, right? You're playing with actual people that. No, no, this is yeah, real, real people, the old-fashioned way. Go and go to someone's house, drive there, and have a beer and have a laugh, roll some dice, make some dirty jokes. Usual like um, role-playing group, I imagine. I imagine pretty much ninety percent of people on GDG are very jealous of you right now. Yeah, it's certainly um, something that should be treasured. A good um, role-play group. And we have a lot of people coming and going, so it's not always the same people. Like, there's a, a core of like two or three people, but we always have new people coming through, which is kind of good and, and sometimes kind of bad. But eh, if they're bad, we usually just kind of like, if they don't turn up, we just kind of stop inviting them and get someone who does turn up. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, the latest game you put out. What is it? Chech- it's based on the Chechen conflict, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Chechen Wars. It's called Cornered Wolf. That's a great name. Yeah, I find that the title of a game is really important. The title and the and the cover. If if those aren't good, it probably no one's going to be that interested. So you got to put a lot of time and effort into thinking up a really good title, and and come out with a a good um, title page as well. You know, looking at this cover on uh, Wargame Vault, I could swear that I've seen you posting about this on TG in the past. Have you? Uh, yeah, I believe I have in the historical Wargame threads. I don't know if you go there. Often or I, I scroll through almost everything, but okay. um, yeah, I do. I had posted a few times on the historical wargame threads, and maybe even in GDG. I'm not sure. I tend to just kind of spam things and, and forget <laughs> where I posted them. So yeah, okay. So but yeah, I'm pretty happy with how the like you know title and cover turned out. The, it references the Chechen flag has a wolf on it, and the the wolf is kind of their um, national animal. Okay. So I'm really into a title that references the conflict, but is also kind of tied to it. In a way, so the idea of a, a cornered wolf, like the Russians coming into Chechnya and like you know backing this thing into a corner and then getting bitten really badly and having to run run away, is is basically how the war went down. So yeah, that's yeah. awesome. It's so evocative, and yet even just on its own, if you know nothing about any of that, the idea of a cornered wolf is just a cool concept. Yeah, I think it came from a documentary I was watching about Chechnya, and I think the narrator said. A wolf is most dangerous when it's cornered, or something like that, something <laughs> awesome like that. And I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And you can see these three Russian guys running into this uh, building, like this dark doorway and this mist and fog everywhere, as if they're going to a wolf's den or something. So it kind of gels nicely. Absolutely. Yeah, it looks very slick. And 
You're saying it's a skirmish game. Uh, you actually say in yeah. the description the size of miniatures it's it's aimed for and uh, or it's supposed to use. And uh, just tell us a little yeah. bit about like mechanically on a on a game design level, what would be the sort of the the stages and phases of playing a game like this, and what your is it like a standard uh, mi- a miniature wargaming setup, or did you do something totally different with it? I, I always tried to start with the, what the conflict was like. And in Chechnya, that was just total chaos. Um, people being confused about where they were in the city and where the enemy was, accidentally firing on friendly units, that kind of thing. Just like everything going wrong kind of oh, thing. Wow. So that was my starting point. I was like, this game has to be chaotic as fuck. And so my two, I, my two main words when I started out this game, chaos and simplicity. And if I can make it really simple but really chaotic, I'd be pretty happy. And so I guess the main interesting mechanic is the uh, uncertain activation. Uh, you deploy your armies, and then you draw from a playing card, a regular deck of playing cards, you draw a card. Hmm. Uh, any red card will allow the Russians to activate, and any black card will allow Chechens to activate. <laughs> uh, and the number, on the, the number on the card will be how many men you can activate for the number cards, and the face cards allow like a vehicle or perhaps a vehicle and some men to activate. So if you get, like, a, a pack of cards and just start pulling them out one by one, you'll be like, okay, you know, three Russians, four Russians, two Chechens, three Russians, nine Chechens, uh, a Russian tank. So it's, it's like you have no idea what's coming next. You don't know who's going to be running across the road or uh, if your guys will make it across the road before they get c- cut down by an automatic grenade launcher or whatever it is that's, that's going to happen. That's and I so... thought that was really important, this uncertain activation. Uh, was a, I thought it was a pretty cool idea. That's brilliant because I mean, especially hearing that you first – knew that that's what you wanted to evoke it's not like you had this idea of you know using cards to activate units and and you tried to find a way to wedge it into something else it's like you research this thing and then you decided i need a mechanic that reflects this and a, and a deck of cards is just you know it's just you, random enough but yet still there's a bit of um you know eventually it's going to even out right <laughs> but with your other key word being you know simplicity it's also this universally available thing like it's just something that everybody can use everybody knows the values you know everybody knows that a queen is higher than a jack and and yet so you can keep it like tied to it so that you know the exact number on the card is how many men you can activate i thought was a really uh good way to do it really simple way to do it yeah that's genius i think that's reason enough to um you know make a separate game for it even if you didn't have this whole conflict you wanted to simulate uh but the fact that it actually was born out of a real interest in a subject, and then you looked for a mechanic that that properly represented it and kept it within this this sort of uh, framework and, and game design goal of keeping it super simple. I think that is something yeah. that everybody in GDG should you know try to keep in mind is to have some goals for what it's going to be, and then like have a topic, a theme, and then. Let the mechanics grow out of that, but yeah, within exactly. the confines that you have as a, from like a, um, a pitch to the players. Like, if you had a whole separate system to represent this, and it was like proprietary and unique to your system, there would be some that would be cool in its own way. But as soon yeah. as you say that you can just use a deck of cards to do this, I guarantee that opens it up to so many more people who are interested because. That's just such a novel exactly. use of something you've already used a hundred times. Exactly. Or something you can pick up really, really easily and cheaply. You can buy a pack of cards for whatever. 
Um, but yeah, going back to mechanics, I always think mechanics should be subservient to gameplay. Gameplay has got to be the most important thing in the game. It's got to be fun. And mechanics should, should help to underpin and underline that. And we use the cards in another way. We use them to randomly generate the forces at the start of the game, which I thought was another way to add some chaos in. Uh, so you don't sit there and write an army list. You randomly you pull cards from the deck and say, oh, I've got an infantry squad. Now I've got a, a couple of tanks. Now I've got a mortar squad. So you don't know what you have each, each uh, game, which I think adds to replayability and makes it a bit more chaotic. You, you're never really sure what the enemy's going to have. Yeah. That's, that's so and- great because it's like, I don't, I know nothing about this conflict. I've heard of it, but you know, I wouldn't know what makes it different from any other war. And uh, the- I think the system would work for a lot of urban conflicts. I don't think, uh, I did start with Chechnya, but I think it would work well in, in many other modern urban conflicts, like in Africa or, um, like Syria. The whole idea of, uh, city fighting is always pretty chaotic. So, right. Um, I, I think the system, Starting with Chechnya, I think I could do a more generic version that could cover almost anything. The only uh, problem is that I'd need to uh, kind of custom make all these uh, activation and random generation tables for each kind of – or just provide a blank one for people to fill in. Um, so, yeah. It, yeah, it I'm taking a look at the uh, the, sh- the shot you gave me here of the activations, the, the Joker even um, having its own special uh, so, unit so- in it. What I have here is the, the generating forces. So this is when you, before you start the game, this is how you kind of, uh, create your army list. This isn't the activation at the moment. Um, right. I can post that to you. I think I have a picture of that somewhere. But yeah, this is kind of the, the starting, uh, before the game starts, you, you each draw a, a randomly, n- random number of, d- uh, cards. Mm-hmm. And the card could be like a, a couple of tanks or a, a squad of infantry or whatever. Um, and then once you have deployed, even deployment is kind of chaotic. Uh, you place one unit on either side of the table. And then after that, it's freeform. You can place them anywhere on the table as long as you're not within 12 inches of an enemy. So you kind of, you'll place oh. some on his side. He'll place some on your side. You'll place some in a building underneath him and he'll place some on a building above you. And you've got <laughs> units all scattered all over the, ta- all the table. So yeah. right from the start, it's like, this is full chaos. That's what you I was going to say is it, it sounds like <laughs> as soon as turn one happens, it's just going to already be a nightmare. Exactly, and that's exactly what I wanted from a Chechnya game in, in uh, Fighting in Grozny. I'm like, I want nightmares straight away. I want the players to have no idea what's going on. And that's just the basic mechanics. And then we have random random events. Uh, every time you draw a Joker for activation, there's a random event, which could be things like you know, a whole sector of the table gets shelled by artillery or perhaps friendly fire incident. Uh, say it's the Russian friendly fire. The Chechens get to choose two different Russian units, one to shoot at the other. Um, and so little things like that will hopefully throw even more chaos into the mix. You know, one thing, there's a lot of guys on GDG who are working on mechanics, and they're just trying to basically spitball a unique mechanic for the sake of having something to build a system around. Like, they're starting with mechanics first. But you said that the mechanics should be uh, born like out of... Subservient to the gameplay? Subservient to the gameplay, exactly. And so yeah. you had this idea of the chaos, but one thing I think is is extra... Interesting about the deck of cards, even though you could say it's very random, it's also very predictable that there are a certain number of cards of each kind, and they're all divided equally between red and black. Yep. If you go through the whole deck, eventually both players will have exactly the same amount of activation, which I thought was a nice way to kind of even out the chaos at the end of the day. It is exactly, yeah, it's exactly it. It's because people love their, their dice and probability so much in yeah. In TG and in GDG and stuff, and they really obsess over that as being the randomizing mechanic. But when you want to tone tone down the complete randomness and have a sort of 
predictability, especially on a one-on-one situation where both sides, um, like you said, by the end of it, everybody had the exact same cards. You could theoretically yeah. draw four cards in a row for one team, right? I mean, and that's that's what happened in the very first playtest. It was like Russians, Russians again, Russians <laughs> again, and Russians again, and we we're like, this game's broken straight away. But but it evened out. The Czechs ended up winning anyway, so it did even out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And wow, that that is very now now that perfectly sums up to me um, the mentality you must be going for in when you say that you want to have uh, accessible but still have choices and a lot of conflict because yeah and this is uh the chechen game is like simplicity one being one of the core ideas it is a bit simpler than the others it's only like 24 pages whereas uh like missile threat is like 150 pages so there's there's a lot more kind of chunk to it this is one of the more simple ones um because i just finished writing missile threat which took me like eight or nine months to research and play test um i kind of just wanted to do something light and simple and you know a game i could type up in a week or something and just kind of get it out there and start having some fun. If it um, sounds yeah. like I'm distracted, it's because I'm reading what you sent me, and I find it very interesting. Um, no problem. But, uh, yeah, I think that's – there's a lot to be learned right there even from from the way you're approaching this that I wish more people would would realize that the mechanics themselves are not the game. And, and that's something I want to talk more about is when you say that the, the mechanics are, are subservient to the gameplay – Mm-hmm. What do you mean by a gameplay exactly? Because there's a lot of people who almost think the oh, mechanics yeah, like, are the gameplay. Right, and they don't. yes. Um, yeah, how do you distinguish between mechanics and gameplay? I don't know. In a sense, they're right. The mechanics are the gameplay. But uh, I think, in the end, the gameplay is your experience of playing the game. Like, uh, not just mechanics. It's the, the thought of thinking, like, what am I going to do next? Uh, how do I get my men around this building? Or um, what's a good tactical decision? I think the, the gameplay involves a lot of thinking as well and, and, um, and, you know, trying something and if it didn't work, like you start feeling bad or you start trying to rethink your position. I think, yeah, the gameplay has a lot more thought involved. It's not just mechanics. Um, yeah, the mechanics are kind of like the, the wheels, whereas you're, you're driving the car kind of thing, I guess, something like that. I totally so to agree. That's, that's what I thought you would say because the, uh, the gameplay experience is as a designer, like as a player, you learn the mechanics in order to, see where it takes you you don't already have a preset notion of of what's supposed to be possible a lot of times you're learning it and then you start playing it and then eventually you get tired of it if you've played it enough times and right but as a designer you have to try to create an ideal experience and the gameplay is different enough from the theme and the tone and and sort of the instruction phase and all of that there's sort of this zone of experience that you want to try yeah. to tap into and that's what everything should be bent towards and everything should be trying to serve that one thing not that you had a clever mechanic and now you're going to try to design a game just for the sake of using that mechanic yeah and it can be difficult to especially if you're like doing a fantasy setting or something where there's no you don't quite have a clear idea of, of what the conflict should be like or what um what exactly the setting is like can be difficult to kind of come up with um, mechanics that suit. Uh, yeah, and that's yeah, actually definitely. one of the biggest problems in RPG design is that there's no um, limit to anything. Like you can simulate yeah. the outer dimensions of the universe and just get into straight up, you know, mind-bending, surreal experiences. And yeah. 
at the same time, you have to have rules for like your knife getting dull and, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like you can get the most mundane things simulated and you can also try to go out into the outer reaches of all imagination and it becomes this, this swamp that this like quicksand that you just can never get out of as a designer and get yes. finished with it. Yeah. yeah, it's tough. Um, it takes a very clear creative vision to say my setting is this exactly this. And now I'm going to create a game to, to match it. Like sometimes it's so easy just to add something on or to, to uh, make a setting very large and, and, and unwieldy almost. But one of the but, things yeah, mechanics can be difficult. Like when you're playtesting and it doesn't quite go right, it can be quite difficult to, to see what, what has gone wrong or, or where it's not working. Um, and being able to step away and kind of analyze how the game went and what was down to just bad luck and what was down to poor mechanics can be quite difficult to, to try to come to terms with that process, um, I, I found. Yeah, and, but at the same time, because you did pick a very specific uh, setting and conflict and you built a system to handle that in a very elegant, smart way, as you said, you could port your system over to a generic thing. So it becomes the solution you found for a specific problem or a mm -hmm. specific experience becomes applicable to many more things because you weren't trying to start with this notion of the universal system that will handle all warfare or whatever. Yeah. Like you're not necessarily dealing with supply lines and this kind of stuff because you're trying no. to simulate, you know, urban warfare and yeah, man to man and a few tanks kind of thing. Right. Exactly. And that's yeah, one thing. It... Sorry, go on. Uh, I was just going to say, that's one thing that is a, is a benefit of having uh, your own restrictions and your own, scope that you narrow it down to you can not only right. finish it quicker but you have you know whether it's right or wrong a lot more clearly than somebody who's basically biting off more than they can chew and then never know whether they should keep expanding or limit it exactly yeah like if you play test your fantasy setting uh, it's hard to tell whether it's accurate to what your fantasy setting is supposed to be like Whereas if you playtest a Chechnya game, it's pretty easy to say, well, that's nothing like what Chechnya was, or, <laughs> or that is like what Chechnya was. I don't know. It's, it becomes a lot clearer when you have, you can read a book about what the tactics were like in this war and then say, well, how am I going to implement these tactics on the tabletop? It's, I find it a lot easier. That's why I mostly write historical, because there's, there's, oh, there's this, um, kind of scope for you set right there, and all you have to do is say, I'm going to make that, or whatever. You I, know I when you've done it. Yeah, you basically know when you've done it right, and you've got these constraints that, I've heard a lot of people say, a lot of creators, when I try to listen to uh, game designers and stuff, they say that, you know, even creating arbitrary constraints can be really good for the creative process. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yep. Just saying, you know, I want this to be able to be played by an eight-year-old is a great restraint. It'll straight away take your your um, your mechanics right down to, you know, needing a five plus on a D6 or something, something <laughs> real simple like that. So let's go right into your cycle of game design because you showed me the this. cycle of game design. It's very... Uh, it's very advanced, sophisticated looking. I can tell this was a lot of work was put <laughs> many, into it. Many hours in um, Microsoft Word. No, no, MS Paint. Not um, even that. Paint.net, paint the cheap version of MS Paint. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I haven't actually read this yet, so walk me through this because I'm looking at, at, well, it starts uh, at the right flowchart here. There in the center with um, get interested in a conflict or period. And that's where it always starts, I think. For me, it's always started with like reading about uh, I don't know ancient Persians or um, or World War Two or whatever whatever conflict it is. That's where for me where it always starts. 
I get interested in something. Yeah. I, I don't write a game it's about something I'm not interested in. And if I do, it would be a horrible grind, and I wouldn't enjoy it, and I probably wouldn't finish it. It's so, interesting yeah, to me, me that you say conflict or period because you're not just interested in – because that's very different than saying get interested in a subject. Like war okay, is a yeah. subject. Um, yeah, a I conflict period or period, be... it, it becomes more specific. Yeah, period would be something – for a larger scale game, like for Missile Threat, we covered air combat from 1960 to 2000. So that's that's like 18 different conflicts there. Right. Uh, so for me, that was really a period of 40 years of air combat. Um, not many of my games cover that larger scope. So uh, maybe like World War II is is almost a period as well because there's multiple conflicts going on. You have like the Sino-Japanese War, Japan oh, and China yeah. fighting, and you have stuff in Africa. You have all these different kind of small scale conflicts, even if they're generally considered the same conflict. But relatively um, yeah. speaking, I mean, compared to the stuff that I see all the time, uh, that's a tiny scope compared to these sort of like truly trying to be universal systems that can scale from like, you know, ancient times to modern day combat with the same system. Who's trying to do this? <laughs> you haven't been on GDG <laughs> long enough. There's, there's people who are doing that and. They're okay. gonna they're gonna come up with one solution to solve all conflicts in history and oh wow when you see it I it's gonna too. everything you've done will be irrelevant because their system will handle wow. it as well but it will be like GURPS you know it's that kind of dream yeah. system it's like GURPS two electric boogaloo that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining the the hurt feelings of the people who are developing those systems Mega right GURPS <laughs> oh, I, mean, I, I guess like uh, yeah. I'm... It, it becomes difficult when you try and cover so much um, that you, you can't cover each specific thing as well, I find. You don't get as much, um, like, feel. I, I think the feel of a period is really important, like Vietnam-era air combat. The missiles were awful. They always failed. Little things like that, that, that. If you think of air combat, you're like, oh, yeah, you fire a missile, it kills someone. But in the early 60s, it's like you fire 10 missiles, and maybe one of them will hit. Like, they were fucking awful. So it's little things like that that really make a, a period feel like a period. Um and if you try and cover them all at once, uh, either you have to do a lot of research and have a lot of little special rules for each conflict and essentially cover each conflict individually, um, or you kind of lose out a lot of that kind of fluff, uh, that kind of feel. Well, and not only that, period. but the mechanical depth to it has to change because, um, like, you know, GURPS is notorious for having a rule for so many different things and then all the different expansion books that cover niche topics and all these sorts of things. And for the people who do want to literally cover like how to dig a hole mechanically, how many men, men per hour digging at this rate (laughs) with that kind of supervisor watching them. It's like, does (laughs) yeah, it's like I read that and I'm, I'm in love. I love this sort of ridiculous level of simulation that people can get into. And the fact that, that it's cool. it's arbitrary or generic means like, yeah, if I ever need a rule on people like undermining a castle and yeah. digging. Or you need to build a trench or something. Your party needs to build a trench to defend against some World War One kind of barrage or something. You'd know how exactly how long it's going to take and <laughs> you know how many man hours, which is great. Yeah, and it's but, like I can't blame anybody for wanting to chase that rabbit hole um, and, yeah. and create this sort of system of systems that will just encapsulate all human experience. But at the same I think time – there is an element where the, the GM has to step in and say, well, you can leave it to the GM. Like 
having to dig a hole, I think the GM could easily say, well, that'll probably take you about six hours if there's four of you. Like, I don't think you always need a, a specific rule for that one thing, unless that- you're an advanced squad leader and you really want to know, um, you know, how long it takes to get through a, a sewage pipe or something. You have a special rule for it. I, I don't know. There's, I think, uh, the term in game design is, is generally, uh, resolution. Like the, the level of resolution that ah, you're, okay. that you're zoomed in on. There are times when the exact, you know, hours that it takes, man hours that it takes would be crucial. It would be, that's if true. It, yes. If it's the divining, if it's the defining moment of the entire conflict and all things hinge right. on this one project of tunneling, you know, Suddenly you want to know exactly how long something takes, but if you're sure, not yes. interested in it, you can zoom out and be like, yeah, whatever. You have all night and there's no rush. So it just, you get done and you don't even have to roll yeah. the dice for it or something like. And a, a DM can still, uh, kind of make that call about, you know, it may still be crucial to dig this hole, but DM says, well, it's going to take you about, you know, uh, six hours plus, uh, D12 hours and I'll roll it behind my screen. So it's going to take them about that long. And it also gives them the option to kind of um, fudge it a little bit. If the if the invasion is coming sooner, you can say, well, it takes you just a little bit longer, so you only just finish it before the invasion comes or whatever. Yeah, so, um, but that, I think that mentality yeah. applies to, you know, a lot of game design, starting with this, just this first point about being interested in a, in a conflict or period. The, what you're saying for your own, because this is your own personal cycle of, of game design, you said it wasn't yeah, exactly. a general yes. theory of how all games are supposed to be designed. Um, it probably could be used as a, a general kind of uh, template, but no, this is this is what happens to me. This is yeah, my experience of game design. Yeah, but I just find that interesting that you, you already start off and indicate that you're more interested in a specific topic and a specific kind of thing that you're interested in recreating uh, rather than sort of a theory crafting uh abstract approach to it like a, almost a philosophical yeah. project yeah definitely for me it definitely stems from an interest in history that's kind of the, the main reason i write games at all is is this um reading a book about whatever it is and i say wow that would make a great war game I, I i've got to write it and i've never been too much of a fan of learning other people's rules there's always something i'm not quite i'm like oh that's a bit complex or uh, they didn't implement this or that so i always just end up writing my own i love that yeah i mean yeah. You have to be able to, if you have strong opinions on these things and you you feel, like you said, you said you, you wanted to recreate a certain feel and that's one of the reasons why you you pick something yeah. more specific because like you said with this Chechen uh, cornered wolf game, it's like you want the chaos, you want the confusion and you want in a sense the unfairness and the, the uh, brutality of that level of randomness. Um, totally. And so you get a feel for it. Whereas if you're starting with a sort of abstract theoretical thing, it's almost impossible to be like, yeah, that feels right because you're more concerned yeah, about right. just, well, can it technically do this? Yes. Okay. That's good enough because as soon as you right. push it into a feel, now you're actually betraying the player who wants to have the generic experience. Right. Yes. It also gives you some interesting challenges. Uh, choosing a specific period because you'll read about it and you'll say, well, how the fuck am I going to implement that in the game? Like, <laughs> I don't think that's even possible. Can I implement that? Um, there's one instance I was reading uh, where Chechens operated in for small wolf packs of like, say, 10 guys and run in between two Russian units, fire at both sides and then run off and the two oh. Russians would fire at each other. Oh, man. And I was like, how the fuck am I going to implement that in the game? <laughs> and you managed but to I did. do it. I managed to, yep. 
<laughs> and it's because you uh, had a very specific uh, constraint that you were trying to work yeah. within. I managed to pull it off with the, the random events, so there could be a friendly fire random event. You, you don't run between two units and start firing at them, but you can still make them shoot at each other. So that's, that's the way I managed to, managed to pull it off. But it always gives you little interesting design problems, like um, in a modern air combat game, Iranian F-14s had awful maintenance and no spare parts because the U.S. had cut them off <laughs> after the Iranian re- uh, um, revolution in 1979. They'd bought, like, the best, F-14, the best fighter in the world, the F-14. They had a whole fleet of them. But then the U.S. said, uh, we can't give any more spare parts. And they'd kept them in the dark about how their radars actually worked. Oh, wow. And so the Iranians had this great plane, but it kept kind of, you know, half the um, fleet was grounded with radars that didn't work. And some pilots would describe, you know, I, I got up in the air, I was just about to fire a missile, and my radar failed. And I was like, I've got to implement this. That's the feeling of the Iran-Iraq war in the air, is having this awesome plane that has awful maintenance, and it might fail at any time. It might go into a stall when you least want it to, and so I was like, I've, I've got to put that in there. A little feel like that. It's beautiful, because a player, a player might go into it having this whole preconception of how cool they're going to be, and once they actually experience it, it would be the same experience that a soldier would have of getting into an F-15 and thinking they're really cool and then yeah. realizing <laughs> that there's some huge problem and that they're screwed. Yep. Yeah, I just did this really hard turn and now my engine has stopped. I'm like, oh shit, i got to spend some time <laughs> to get it working again instead of like, you know, trying to shoot down that mega over there, which is exactly what happened in one of our play tests. Like the Iranian F-14 came in and, and did a hard turn and his engine stopped. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's good. Okay, that's that's the first point of your cycle of game design. Let's move yeah. on to the next one, which is form a premise, uh, what the game should be like, define complexity and scope. Yep. So, yeah, that you you have a period you're impl- uh, interested in or a setting you're interested in. Then you have to say, well, how, what is this game going to be like? Um, is it going to be really complex? Is it going to be a simple family game? Is it going to be somewhere in the middle? Because I would scope say... Is, sorry, go on. Even even though we just barely talked about like the the scale of a, the subject that you're designing around, even this would be like even if you're interested in that conflict, was it the psychological warfare? Is that the elements you want to emphasize, or is it like right. the uh, um, how am I losing so the word? If you're you doing like more of an RPG, you... it would probably be the the psychological elements. Yeah, definitely. If it was more kind of small scale and uh, you know a few guys in the middle of the city somewhere, you'd really want to emphasize those psychological elements yeah or like attrition and you know resource management there's also that kind of complexity and scope whereas if you say i want it to be kind of broader strokes because you have a target audience in mind that also means you know it has to be simple and i don't want to if i'm going to play this with kids i don't want to emphasize the horrors of psychological war i want to you know yeah exactly And, and so that that should um should inform your decision but generally, I try to write for myself to start with, um, something I'm going to enjoy. I don't want it to be too complex, but maybe someone would want it to be quite complex. So if they were writing it, they'd, they'd write something you know, with all the little all the little details covered. Um, and the scope part is about what size you want to cover. Does it, is it going to be skirmish? Is it going to be an entire like army? Is it going to be just like two guys walking down a street? Um, like how many units are you going to be using? What kind of... What's the scope of um, the, the the army size or the, the unit size you're using? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the, the next point then. I'll let you handle that. Uh, research the shit out of the period. <laughs> this continues for the rest of the cycle. So generally this has already started. When you got interested in the period, you, you're already technically researching. 
you read a book about it or you watch the movie, you watch Saving Private Ryan, you're like, oh, yeah, I want to play a World War II skirmish game mm, or right. I want to drive some tanks around or whatever it is. Um, but research is important. You, you can't just say, hey, I'll design a air combat game and there's no research and just say, yeah, planes attack each other. I, I mean, you probably could if it was a really simple like family game, but um, I, I think the research is important. Especially yeah. to get those little little feelings of how what the conflict was like. Exactly, because I was just going to say that you know a lot of the stuff that I see people designing, they do have research, but it's a, like quasi research based on myths and uh, and half combined with movie genres because they really want to uh, not only have that type of conflict, but there's. Like you said, making the hard turn and your engine fails, you know, that's a real life problem that people actually had. I don't know if there's been yeah. fictional, usually movies and stuff, they, they always tweak things and, and make it yeah. so that there's a certain climax and a flow to it that is ideal. But when you actually do the real research into how stupid war can be and how, <laughs> yeah. you know, how much failure there is in ways you wouldn't expect, yeah. You break away from the research, quote unquote, of movies and stories that you thought were cool, and you move into a different territory of of this sort of sobering or hilarious experience that you wouldn't yeah. expect from a casual research. And that's something that's really important to me is the first hand account. Like what was it actually like? Like try and find writings of people who are actually there. Like when I was researching World War One, I, I read a lot of books or actually audio books. Uh, written by people who are actually there and saying, like, you know, this is what I did today. We were shelled by artillery as I was trying to get to this post office or whatever, and there was pretty much just a wall of artillery in front of us, and my whole platoon went through, and they all just died immediately, and I was like, well, I don't think I should go through there, guys. Like, oh, wow. just little things like that. Like, I think first-hand counts are really vital, especially if you're doing historical um, war games. And that's yeah. something that is very difficult if you're writing a fantasy setting. There are no first-hand accounts. There's no documentaries you can watch. There's no books about the tactics it makes it quite difficult that i find it makes um, that's it, why i don't write yeah fantasy i agree and i think it makes it difficult but at the same time it's an opportunity that i would say like i'm, I'm a pretty big fan of warhammer uh mm-hmm. one of the reasons why is because they have so much lore and so many stories and accounts they have novels after novels and all this lore yep. that they put out and you can tell that the goal is to create a feeling of the world that is on par with these historical accounts that things do totally, go yeah. wrong in horrible ways. And so as in a way you have the opportunity when you're designing a fictional world or a fantasy world to put your own very distinctive stamp on it, but you have to reinforce it in very hard mechanical ways and, and with uh, lore and fluff that all supports that because uh, if you're not, yeah, like basically that you're you're you have the opportunity to still make it a certain feel, but you have to know mm-hmm. and and entice people into accepting that, and not say, well, I'm just recreating this genre that you're already familiar with, so you're right, going to hit yeah. these certain beats at certain times, and and you'll have this predictable experience. But it is very hard to do that. Yeah, you essentially have to be a writer. You have to be able to write a really good story. You have to almost invent those first-hand accounts. Which is very – I'm not a, a writer, really. I can't really do that. So, I mean, if you're a really good writer, you could write a really amazing fantasy setting. You could have first-hand accounts that feel real, that have all the gritty detail and things going wrong of a, of a real historical account. Yeah, and um, in that case, that, you'd, you'd have to basically be like, I'm creating a period. 
And then I'm mm-hmm. going to pretend I'm going to put myself in the mentality of somebody there who's doing research on this period and the weird yes. things you would find out as you were doing that. Like, yeah, it's a couple degrees more difficult and more demanding. I mean, I'm more of a writer for me. Okay. The idea of going to a, a real life conflict, I'd feel a little bit too restrained and I would feel like there's, you know, that anybody could do it, you know, or something like that. Okay. Yep. But and and people do do it though. Like a lot of these conflicts, like World War Two, has you know hundreds of games for it. Like it's they do do it. Yeah. Right, but there's that's why I find it very interesting what you're doing because you have you do have very strict constraints, and it's like you said yourself, you know, it's like cheating. You go and find out something awesome and you recreate it, but yeah, it's it's exactly. absolutely about how you execute it that matters. And what yeah. you're doing is is executing it in a way that nobody else is. So. That's why you would buy your games, and I'm sure you have people who are fans of your style of game design because – Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Well, people – I always have pretty good feedback. People always say, you know, this is really fun. I played this with my 7-year-old son, and then I played it with my 77-year-old uh, mother the other day, and they both loved it. So, I mean, there's always kind of pretty good feedback. Um, it's when I don't hear feedback that I'm slightly worried about, like, maybe it's too complex or maybe they didn't enjoy it or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I always try to play, play the games a lot myself to make sure that they do work and they are fun. Uh, the playtesting is very important. And I think that's one of the upcoming... Oh, no, no. That's, that's We're a still a long down. ways off from that. Go, yeah. to the, go to the next point. <laughs> go ahead and explain the next one. <laughs> next one is form a draft of the basic mechanics. So you've uh, researched what the, the, the period is like. Then you start thinking, okay, how am I going to represent this on the tabletop? Okay, so F-14s, their radars fail. All sorts of things can go wrong. But how is that actually going to happen in-game? Like, what do I do? Exactly. I don't want them to fail all the time. I want them to fail occasionally, not enough to make people say, oh, I'll never take an F-14 because they always fail. You want it to be just a little bit, a little bit of possibility. So in that situation, I, I had a table that said, um, if these things happen, roll 2d6. On a double one, there is a, a specific result. So if you, if you make a hard turn, roll 2d6. On a, on a snake eyes, your engine fails. And at that so point, that if kind a player of, rolls snake eyes, it's universally known when you get snake eyes that it's just terrible luck and you have to accept that bad things are going to happen to you. That's right. And it's, it's small enough that you could, you'll still take an F14 because it's, it's pretty cool. Um, in fact, I can probably find the table for you. But yeah, that was kind of the, that was the implementation of at least that one mechanic. But, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of what you got to do. You got to think, how am I going to actually, you know, what, this is the mechanic stage, um, where you really do have to say, you, how does one soldier kill another soldier? Do they, Need to roll the hitch, and they then roll the wound and have a save, or is it just one dice? And is do they draw a card to see if there's a wound or not? Like you do need to knuckle down and be like, how do I represent this on the tabletop? Yeah, I think this is the stage where most people get stuck forever, and they never are satisfied <laughs> with their their mechanics because you always feel like you could do it better. Or people, I think the problem is people don't decide who they're aiming it at and have that sort of clear vision of the field that they're going for. Because if you just want to simulate a thing, quote unquote, you know, there's a million things you can simulate about almost any experience, especially if it's a complex one. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a clear vision and that'll make it very easy to say, well, I don't care about, you know, whether the guy is eaten or not, you know, whether he's on an empty stomach or not. That's not what this is about. It's still part of the, the experience that he's having, but, I'm specifically trying to set out mechanics that will define the experience. And you said before, 
you know, distinguish, distinguishing the gameplay from the mechanics and letting the mechanics be subservient to the gameplay. I think that's mm-hmm. probably the stage now where you are settled on, you've researched what you want to do. Yep. Now you, you have, have to, now you have to, yeah, you have your scope. So now translate that yeah. into gameplay that you can then create mechanics yeah. to support. And you've got to, you, this is the part where I'll also like draft out my rules. I'll go through a, a word file and, you know, put in headings, you know, uh, forces, deployment, activation, um, uh, weapons, infantry, tanks, whatever it is, all the different headings. And so that kind of gives me a rough framework to, to work in and I can go through and start filling them out. You should always start with an introduction, like, what is this game about? Uh, what is the scale? What do you expect? What, what do people need to play? That kind of thing. Like, your first page should be all that stuff, you know, introduction, what you'll need. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Cornered Wolf has a premise for this rule set, and also why Chechnya is the very first kind of um, the heading. Why Chechnya? Like, I thought it was pretty good to um, to explain why I actually chose this conflict. Well, yeah, because it's, like it's literally the first thing everybody would, normal people would ask when they, like... This guy designed a Why? game around this. Why on earth have you written a Chechnya game? Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's so many more epic and more known conflicts. Um, yeah. But those exactly. people who do give it a shot and see that, they're very quickly going to realize that there's actually a good reason for it. The introduction then sets your expectations as a player. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm looking at this uh, table you sent me with the... Uh, yeah, and the we can fail- probably put a link to all these um, these pictures and tables, I'm sure, for your podcast viewers. Yeah, I'll try to. Uh, I'm planning on putting it on SoundCloud. There should be room to put it on there. And- mm, uh, yeah, I think you could make a comment, and then in the comment you could link to like an Imgur or something. Um, yeah, kind of. I'm link. definitely going so to try to. It'll work. It'll work. Yeah, and one of the things I was going to ask, just based off of you know seeing your rules here, you said, if I remember correctly, that you did all the the writing and formatting in the book yourself, right? Yep, that's right. Yep, I do all the, um, like making the backgrounds, uh, covers and all the writing and stuff myself. So one of yeah, the, so kind of a, one of the perpetual, you know, uh, struggles of people on GDG is, is deciding how to format a book because obviously the, the blank page is this sort of, uh, intimidating thing. So I really mm-hmm. find it interesting that you were talking about, you know, creating the headings and then writing the, the the introduction and description and sort of uh, setting out the scope of your game on paper. Do you do that sort of in that order because you just want to get the broad um, strokes right away and then you know the details will be filled in later? Pretty much, yeah. Um, writing the headings only also allows you to structure it um, quite nicely. You can have all your infantry rules together and then all your like morale rules or whatever and all your vehicle rules later or whatever it is, say all your magic rules together. It allows you to kind of get a feel for how the the game will flow as people read through it. So obviously an introduction first to, to get people acquainted with what's going on, what they're going to need. And then you can kind of think, well, what do they need to know next? They need to know how to start the game, like deployment, that kind of thing. And then how does the game actually play, like activation? And then how do the specific units work? So I kind of, that's something I've done a bit more recently. Like to start with, I just kind of went higgledy-piggledy and just started writing and it was all kind of a mess and it took a lot of editing to get it correct. But this is kind of the method I've um, settled on in the last few games to write headings and then go back and fill them in later. Yeah, And, and it also to... means that when you're not inspired, you can kind of just go through your file and be like, hmm, I haven't written an introduction yet. Oh, I could write that now. Yeah, I think that's a smart way of, of setting yourself up for it's, it's In a way, it's a to-do list. And yeah, in exactly. a way, it's, it's also a structure. And it makes you, it yeah. forces you to think of the bigger picture first, which is something I notice a lot of people 
they sort of get ahead of themselves and get right into the most detailed minutiae of their system when they haven't even created the structure for it yet. Right. Oh, this yeah. is awesome. A, a playtester just sent me like 20 photos of him playtesting our Chechnya game. Oh, this is great. <laughs> Facebook. Facebook's awesome for keeping in touch with your uh, your players. No doubt about it. I mean, that's if you can actually get players, which is the dream of most people who are just starting out trying to design stuff, uh, yeah. to actually have a, a venue for them to give you feedback and if they like it enough, actually send you like pictures and fan yeah, battle reports stuff. or just talk about stuff. Um, yeah, it's always good to kind of go on forums and try and find people who are interested in the same things you're interested in. Um, I remember I found a guy called John Salt, who I think is like a war games lecturer at some uh, military college or something. He's like this old, awesome guy who's <laughs> some walking, a walking encyclopedia on, on war game. That name is pretty badass, too. John Salt. Dr. John Salt. Uh, anyway, so he, he's like this awesome guy that I, I think I discovered him, him on uh, the war game website, one of, the, one of those forums. And um, so I'd often send him a draft, uh, and he'd write me, like, a 10-page email going through, like, this, 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 this isn't quite right. And that's that's when I just started taking notes and being like, okay, I'm going to make all these changes based wow. on, on this guy who knows exactly what he's talking about. So, yeah, I think it's really important to build a base of people who are interested in the same things as you you can kind of go to. You're not always going to get players who are, like, you release a game, it's, it's unlikely people are just going to play it straight away and send you feedback. But occasionally people will, and, and if, especially if it's something that people have always wanted but have never quite gotten like a Chechnya rule set like all these people have Chechnya Chechen um, miniatures but they've got no rule set to use for them no specific rule set so when they do see that come up on Wargame Vault or on some news site somewhere they say whoa I've been wanting a Chechnya game for so long or whatever that's um, fascinating that's, having yeah. the the sort of a built in that that is why you would have a Wargame Vault as opposed to the drive through RPG you'd have a community you know that's distinct and it has a whole different sort of cachet to it because you are dealing with uh, real conflicts that had real meaning and, and people just like collecting models of, you know, real military or vehicles and stuff like that. Yeah. You Even if these people aren't necessarily um, a fan of yours, you can much easier reach out to them because they're a fan of that idea and that concept that you're tapping into. Whereas I would That's contrast right. that with something like TG and the role-playing community which is notoriously, you know, hostile to people putting out new ideas, and they're almost always busy just infighting over the existing systems. And uh-huh, it's, yes. you know, it seems like there's, I imagine, because the idea of a like a professor or somebody doing lectures, and then you can send them something and they give you feedback on it. That's such an amazing resource. Oh, it's in- incredible. Like I, I, I don't know how I got to this this point, but I think I just started talking to him on the Wargames website, and then just I think I just sent him an email or something. And the same thing with um, there's a guy called Tom Cooper who actually wrote the the book on F14 Iranian F14s in combat that I read uh, when I was researching, and that's where I read about the radars failing and the engines stopping. And so this guy had written this book back in the 80s or something, and then one day I found him on Facebook and like started talking to him and actually sent him <laughs> a copy of my air combat rules, and he came back and, and looked through all the units and was like, this guy's basically a, a walking encyclopedia on, on modern air combat, and he was like, you know. Uh, Vietnam, this, 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 uh, next conflict, Arab Israeli wars, this, this, this is wrong. They should have this, uh, MiG 21 MF or whatever. He know, he knows all the stuff like by heart without even having wow. to look at the book. Like it was, it was incredible. And I'm so I'm very lucky to have these kind of high caliber people come through and have a look at these rules. It doesn't happen often, but occasionally if you're really nice to them and you thank them for their time so much afterwards, like they'll usually 
they're usually interested in at least having a look at the game. Yeah, and obviously, I'm guessing you give them some credit in the in the book too, and you know. Definitely, yeah. They're usually the first people I mention when I have a, a notes from the designer section where I'll say, you know, firstly, I'd like to thank, you know, Dr. Jay Salt and Tom Cooper for their uh, extensive feedback and, and all the help they've had. I'd like to thank my playtesters, all that. So they're, they're the first people who get any recognition in the th- notes from designer section, which I think is a very important section to have. You want to have a bit of a talk to the reader directly and say, this is what I tried to do. This is the things that didn't quite work. These are the people who helped me do it, uh, that kind of thing. Very interesting. I'm trying to think of a way of finding an equivalent for the fantasy RPG sort of, or sci-fi mm. RPG sort of thing, because... I, I wonder if you could talk to, like, fantasy writers. Go away uh, and say, uh, send it uh, to, to someone and say, you know, does, does this sound good? Or, I, I don't know. Something try like to that, hit maybe. up, like, Brandon Sanderson or whoever and be like, yeah, oh, or, you wrote uh, all these fiction fantasy books, you know, what do you suggest for this or that? But at the same time, I imagine with fiction, you're getting pretty close into like, um, almost copyright territory, like, or like, um, like they want to create, that's, that's a creative contribution as opposed to a research contribution. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it'd be difficult with fantasy, um, because a lot of, maybe a lot of writers aren't aren't war gamers themselves or uh, like your setting is quite unique and maybe they'd want to have their own spin on it or uh i don't know I, I think it'd be quite difficult whereas if you go to someone and say you know here's my vietnam air combat game i've written do you think the units are right they say well you know, um i i know exactly how vietnam was like and i exactly. can say that the u.s didn't have this aircraft in 1965 or whatever it was yeah no that's that's one of the again a very valuable thing about having that real basis and a uh very defined scope of what you're trying to recreate. Yeah. And, and you automatically have a audience as soon as you pick a conflict. Usually people are infl- interested, interested in that conflict, which is another good thing. Mm-hmm. And then you move on to uh, playtesting once you have those playtest. mechanics That's and right. the research. You write your first draft, and then you say, okay, does this actually work? And you get the pieces out on the table, you roll some dice, and do the do the grind of, of yeah, there's, there's like a, a loop here. Refine rules based on playtest. Fill out the rules and add a single new mechanic. So you'd write mm. your draft, maybe you'd playtest like a core mechanic just to start with. I remember when I was writing Missile Threat, a uh, modern air combat game, I tested it out at work, just the, you know, um, firing missiles at each other and trying to avoid them. That was all I tested, like just to see if it, it would be fun. And that was kind of the core of the game. Try and make missiles fun to try and outturn and, and have them try and track you. That, that was kind of the, the very core. And then, and then yeah, you, you're saying, you know, one new mechanic, oh, I, I imagine, is an important thing to to point out, is that you don't want to do five new mechanics and then test it. Exactly. Yeah. You, well, you, you try to add just one thing at a time. Sometimes it's hard to avoid. You say, oh, I'll just add vehicle rules and sneak in some uh, smoke grenades or whatever as well, and it'll be all right. Um, but but usually you want to try to just do one big, th- one big thing at a time, I suppose. You can always add small things, like a, a one weapon or maybe... Um, uh, a slight change to the cover rules or something. You can you can add little things, but you want to only add one big thing at a time, really. Uh, and I remember when we were writing Ostfront, we kind of we started off just tanks fighting each other. Uh, this is our World War II rule set, and then we added infantry, and then we added uh, artillery. So each one of those took like you know months and months of playtesting, and then we'd add the other one and do a few more months. And it, when we felt that they were working, working, then we'd add our new mechanic. That makes perfect sense. And at the yeah. same time, you have to. I imagine you have to think ahead a little bit to not. Be like, well, now when I add this new thing, it's actually going to force me to revise ten other things. Yeah, you, you do want to kind of think 
when I add this mechanic, how is it? How's the game going to be, be affected? You can't just like ran, add them randomly and hope that it's going to work. You do need to think. You know, I've already got this cover mechanic or whatever it is. If exactly. I add in grenades that negate cover, it's gonna there's going to be some kind of like I need to think how it's going to affect it kind of thing. You do have to think a lot uh, in advance. You're right. Hmm. And then the play test keeps going until uh, you're happy with the the rules yep. and the mechanics. And so you're completely happy. So you've played a few games and made almost no changes. Uh, now, I don't think there'll ever be a time where you play a game and there aren't any changes. Maybe after five or six years of playtesting, even then you might be tweaking small things. So you're at a point where you're pretty happy with them. You're not taking like a whole page of notes from a, from a single playtest. Um, you're just maybe just taking one thing or, or, or even nothing is ideal. Man, yeah, that's, I, that's the point where you can say, I think it's done. That's something I, you know, I've been working on a, on a fantasy RPG for, for so long. And when I do play tests of it, you know, I'm always obviously the one that's running it. Mm-hmm. And so every time there's any feedback at all, I'm tempted to just, you know, take it as something I need to change, but you, it's very hard to sit down and be like, let's just pretend I'm a dungeon master kind of guy. And mm-hmm. I'm running this system. I'm not the designer. You can't, you can't tell me, I should change this or that rule. I'm just playing the game as rules. Because, yeah, as the designer, you're always looking for the changes you could make. Yep, that's right. And it's it's very difficult. You try not to change things mid-game, but sometimes something's so broken, you just say, oh, well, let's let's, let's change it to that or whatever. Uh, And that does happen. Um, If you find something just isn't working at all, you say, well, then obviously it needs to be like this. And sometimes you can get some really good solutions during playtest, being like, wow, this isn't working at all. Um, Let's just do something simple to, to fix it or whatever. Yeah, I've had some uh, of think... the best solutions uh, have come out of somebody playtesting it and all of us just trying to articulate together what exactly the problem is because it's like it, it should be fine and it looks good on paper, but something mm-hmm. is wrong about it. And and so mid-playtest, you can make an adjustment and suddenly, you know, it's like uh, the it's solution like life, is yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Eh? Uh, playtesting is really important. If a game doesn't play well, something's really, really wrong, and, and that's what the whole thing is about. The game design is all about designing a game. The game's got to be fun. It's got to work well. Um, and you should always be taking notes when you're playtesting, even if it's just a, a bullet point, like, you know, change movement to six inches or um, grenades don't work or whatever. Um, just always take notes. Every, every time something comes up, take a note. Uh, and that way afterwards you can work through it and be like, okay, I need to type this up, need to change this, etc. Yeah. I know playtesting is something that's it's very hard for uh, people who don't have an existing group. And even if you do have an existing group, you might be the guy in the group who everyone thinks, oh, he has these crazy creative ideas. Yeah. You know, you're sort of, you're the, not the, the person. Crazy game designer. <laughs> exactly. We um, all like playing. I've been playing. very lucky in that I have a, a flatmate who um, we both got, got down to a war, war games club. And we pretty much just play the games I've, I've written. So it's, it's kind of, I've been very lucky to have. Uh, playtests are pretty much on call the entire time. And occasionally a few other friends will come down and help, but very much it's kind of a one-on-one. Uh, and if, if he's not keen, like there's usually someone down at the club who is keen to just try some things out. Um, but yeah, I've been very lucky with playtests um, over the, the years, and it is very important. You can't you can't really properly playtest on your own. You do need someone else on the other side, because um, often they'll come up with things that you weren't expecting, or they'll write an army list that you would never have written, etc. Kind of I know some people who, uh, relatives and friends who, have tried to make board games and, you know, they've, they have made board games. They haven't started a company mm-hmm. and been successful, but they've made board games and 
knowing that it's probably never going to be released as a product or whatever. And it's really yeah. fun, you know, to get together and play test their games. But there's there's really a hard balance between, you know, being a hobbyist game designer, finding people who are willing to indulge your ideas, mm-hmm. and especially if they don't have a good time, if the if the game actually isn't fun. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. So now you've you've managed to wrangle them in and get them to playtest it, which is a very generous, gracious thing for somebody to do. They they deserve yeah. a lot of credit for testing out a game, but what if the experience isn't good? You've sort of sullied the next time you want to try playtesting the same thing. Even it's like ah, oh, we did that already and it wasn't fun. Exactly. People might think that uh, I don't want to play with his weird games. That they're not fun. I don't want to do that. Like. It's, it's very difficult. And for many years, I didn't have a playtester, and maybe I'd occasionally convince a workmate to come around and play, but then that would be one time, and that would be it. Kind of, um, so I've been very lucky, I guess, just to have um, playtesters around. There's definitely people who literally will pay people to playtest it. I mean, Totally, yeah. Yeah, there's entire forums dedicated to like um, uh, people who want, need playtesters or, or um, are willing to playtest or something. Uh, yeah. What, what would be an yeah. example of that? Because... Um, if you if you have a resource that you can think of, you would you would suggest to people who are listening to this that they go there and they could you know maybe get some play testers. Do you know of a place offhand that you could point to? Uh, I can I can only think of one forum that I know of that has a play testing subsection, which is uh, the miniatures page TMP, which I think has a lot of uh, bad press and around TG and people generally think it's awful awful place. Um, but I think it, uh, the best way is probably just to go down to your local club, uh, talk to some people, get to know some people, and just to say, hey, I've got this crazy game. Want to try it out? Um, I think that's the best way. Really go in, down in person, and, and it does kind of rely on having a war games club around or, or a role-playing uh, club. <laughs> yeah, um, not only that, but having the social skills to be able to uh, <laughs> entice right. people who don't know who you are or maybe you have to yeah. first integrate yourself di- a little bit. Yeah, it can be difficult. Yeah, you don't want to get straight away go down and be like, Hi guys, I'm a game designer. Let's play my game. Like it's probably not going to work. You, you want to just go down and check out what's going on, and and just uh, hang out and talk to people, get to know people a bit. Um, and with role playing games, it can be a bit harder because usually they're set in their campaign. You can't just break in and say, "Hey, let's try my my role playing game." It's like they're doing their weekly thing, and you can't really break in. It could be a lot harder. You probably need to recruit flatmates or friends and just say, "Hey guys, want to do a one shot? Let's have some beers, come around and try this game and see what happens." Like I don't know, just try to make it a social thing, and yeah. I think that's probably the best way to do it. It's a bizarre environment for for role-playing games. I'm realizing the more I I look into it and I I listen to other accounts from people is there's so many, uh, it's everything is so abstract and most RPGs are designed to be endless. So even just beginning Mm -hmm. one is sort of this vague promise that it's going to somehow end horribly because, you know, it's like... That's the threat, isn't it? It's like getting a a dog (laughs) and it's like, I love this dog. Well, I know it's going to die in five to eight years. Like, I could have an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You start this group, yeah. and you're like, "How is this going to break up horribly in a while?" Yeah, like, right. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we we have an interesting war games club where we actually have role players there as well. So most of us are playing tabletop games, you know, like uh, Warhammer and um, uh, the X-wing games. Uh, but then there's also a, a regular group of uh, role players there, which is quite an interesting mix. You don't usually have that mix, I don't think. Um, no, I so don't this, imagine. So that's kind of cool. We'll be sitting there like doing some historical game, and you hear like someone go, "I cast fireball," like something like that. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> I imagine for a lot of people, 
you basically have to be the guy who says, I'm going to start the club. Uh, there's a lot of places that don't have anything like that. Oh, yes. Yeah, that that um, that would be tough. Uh, and maybe that's the case. Uh, it could be very difficult, but you, you probably – you can find somewhere like a university. It usually has like a clubs and societies area where you can um, get a room once a week or something. Or maybe you can – I suppose renting a hall isn't always a great idea, especially if it's just you. But um, I don't know. I'm sure there's, there's usually game places uh, have little tables or, or maybe the library has a table or something you could go and try to find some interested people. I love your optimism yeah, with this. If there's no war game, if there's no war game club, it's going to be difficult. Um, yeah, so you're just going to try and be entrepreneurial, I guess, and start something. I don't know. I'm trying it's, to, it's difficult. It can be difficult. I'm trying to picture right now the, the number of people who hate you out of envy that you make it sound so easy to find people to play right. test. And, you know, I just have my roommate and my best friends and my other people. They all want to interior me there's a club i can go to and just go to this university it's like there's somebody they're they're in chechia you know they're not able to yeah yeah right if i was in chechnya i'm sure it'd be very difficult i i don't think i'd be playing any war games i'd just be trying to survive um but yeah my my city has a population of i think 120,000, so we're not massive um but yet there is uh two war game clubs that uh one's weekly and one is kind of uh three weeks a month kind of thing. Um, so I guess we're quite lucky in that respect. But if I was living like, uh, you know, um, two hours away in the middle of the country, I'd, there'd be nothing. And I'd, I'd probably have to start my own club. Um, and there'd be no one, there'd be no one to play with. I'd be kind of screwed pretty much. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in that kind of area, like in the middle of nowhere, it pretty much was me and my brother. That's all I had. And we, our parents wouldn't let us watch TV. So we pretty much had to make up our own game. Uh -huh. so wow. We created, we created like dungeon crawl, uh, like randomly generated rooms like in Diablo and, and things like that would create little games. Man. Yeah, you can get a lot of creativity out of that, that sort of environment of uh, necessity. Definitely. Nothing around, nothing to do, no TV. Like, what do you do? You can read a book or you can like build something with Lego or maybe you can like make some game based on a computer game you love, like, uh, I don't know, make Age of Empires on a whiteboard or something, something like that. It's, that's, that's the kind of thing we did when we were kids. Yeah, and then obviously when you you have the opportunity to move somewhere where there's a lot more people and a lot more opportunities, you shouldn't be discouraged from putting yourself out there and actually looking for that. Yeah. And for many years, I was my own playtester. I didn't go to the clubs. I was just um, in my room uh, playing both sides of a battle for many, many years. I didn't have any playtesters. And, and I wasn't thinking about publishing. I was just like, I wanted to make an Ancients game of Greeks versus Persians. So I just wrote a simple rule set and um fought both sides like sometimes you just have to do that like I, it's something i enjoyed so i don't know why i did it but i just did and and then eventually like years and years and years later my friends we were playing uh like 40k and, and fantasy together and we decided we'd start making a like a world war ii game after reading um the book stalingrad i was like man tank battles in the eastern front that sounds awesome i've got to make it an eastern front war and that's kind of where the whole thing like ostfront was our first game Right, uh, and that's where the name of the company comes from, Ostron Publishing. So that was kind of the the start of the let's get serious and make a war game kind of. Thing. Well, at least now people can't hate you for just falling ass backwards into a, no. a fortunate it, situation. You did have many years of doing it the hard way with nobody else. Yeah, playing both sides of a battle, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, I just did it because I I enjoyed it, and yeah, I don't. You know, didn't give up on it. it as a hobby, obviously. No. Yeah, I've always enjoyed war games. I guess I don't know why. I got into um, 40k when I was a teenager. And then kind of um, got out of it for a while and, and then got back in maybe mid-20s and then started playing fantasy and getting heavily into fantasy and all tactics and, and loved that for playing, playing tournament scene uh, in fantasy and 40K for a while. 
And then, yeah, just to kind of moved over to historicals and started writing my own games, and that was that was kind of it. I don't really play any historical games other people have. Uh, I've tried one Napoleonic game that's pretty good, but mostly I just write, write my own and play my own. When we go to the club, we're almost always playing the often publishing games, and it's usually something different. Like, people are always coming down and saying, oh, what are you playing this week? Like, it's some new game that he's working on or whatever. It's, it's kind of a – people always come down. They're always interested in, in what we're up to now. And I'll oh. say, oh, we're playing um, Iran-Iraq War, and one guy will say um, – they didn't fight, did they? And I was like, oh, yeah, actually, they fought for eight years. <laughs> and so people are always learning a bit when they come down to our table. It's like, oh, you're playing Chechnya. Oh, that's that's unusual. <laughs> it's quite quite fun. Yeah, I mean, you can just look at the, the library of stuff you guys have put out. And I think anybody who sees it has to be fascinated in what you guys are going to do next because it really does cover quite a bit. I mean, you have a, a nice balance of um, a certain type of of game that you're creating, you know, obviously war games and, and yet you have very simple, very calm, like advanced and deep things. And I mean, just the variety of settings. And- yeah. There's a variety of complexities as well, which is nice. And, and yeah, I, like I said, it all starts with interest in the conflict. So usually that's, that's what guides me as to what I'll do next. Um, and, and after finishing the Chechen game, I was like, well, I just want to, I just want to chill. I don't have any good ideas. So I'm just going to hang out and do nothing for a bit. And then I got to thinking, uh, it'd be kind of cool to do a like a modern air combat game, but you know, family friendly. So, you know, one guy has fighters, and one guy has like an electronic warfare aircraft that could protect his friendly aircraft, and one guy's a bomber or whatever. I don't know. I was like, oh, that could be kind of cool. Maybe I should try and feel around and see if it will. Because sometimes you do look at a conflict and you say, this is a really interesting conflict, but it'll make a terrible war game. It's just it's not going to work. And that hmm. did happen to me with um, the Rhodesian Bush War. I got really interested in it. I bought miniatures. Uh, and I went down, sit down and start writing it. And I was like, this would make a terrible war game. One side <laughs> always wins. Like, there's, there's no question. The Rhodesians won every single battle histor- historically. It's like, this is going to be shit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you could probably force it to work, but, um, if the premise is, you know, one side always wins, I just can't see that being as fun as something a bit more balanced. Um, the, thing, the thing that I love is that you still considered it. Like you still tried to, yeah. to figure out yeah, if that would work. It. And read, read, read like two or three books or like first-hand accounts of uh, people in the in the Bush War. I thought that was really interesting. It was really fascinating stuff. Like um, uh, when they're training uh, in the um, Sulu Scouts, they'd be given no food for the first week. So they're like almost starving and then they'd be given a rotten baboon. And that's all you have to eat. And so they're like, well, how the fuck are we going to – this thing's rotten. Oh, well, we'll cook it in one pot. Then we'll scrape all the maggots off and then cook aye, it in another aye. pot so there's no maggots in it. And they just eat it. Like they're so hungry. They don't give a fuck. And, and that was the training for those Sulu Scouts and – in Rhodesia. So yeah, little things like that. I'm like, I can't make a war game out of this. <laughs> you could, but yeah, who would? Maggot Eater 3.5. Yeah. Man. And so what, at what point in that process do you actually decide to give up on it? Because there's a lot of people who, once they start a project, they feel somehow like it's the, they're committed to it. And at that point, you know, they just yeah, tweak I, um... it until it does work. Well, I, I, usually I start with making a cover, so I kind of um, make a few random covers, and I, I'll upload a few here, and and start reading about it, and that's kind of my starting point, you know, uh, thinking about the aesthetic and um, and what it's gonna um, <laughs> like, what, what the research is, and but then I got to the actual mechanics, and I was like, wait a second, one side has really awesome, has all these helicopters, and like is really well trained, the other side is like just so bad that they they couldn't hit you with an AK if you were standing right in front of them. Like they had a, the African troops, they tended to kind of jerk their gun forward and close their eyes when they fired. Oh, wow. So like, there's no way you're going to be aiming at it. And they generally felt that, um, 
whoever was making the most noise was probably winning the battle. So they tend to just fire on full automatic the whole time. Just go, and think they're winning. So like, compared to these, you know, the Rhodesians would come in, they had this fire force tactic where they'd have four or five helicopters. Three of them would go down and land troops while another one would cover from above with a 20 mil cannon. And they're just like, like op, full operator going and just like, like headshot, 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 walk through the place, just clear it. And that, that'd be it. That'd be their day. They'd do it two or three times a day. And just like, I was like, this, this isn't going to make a very good game. One, one side's pretty much everyone's always going to want to play the Rhodesians. I think I thought was what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I find that so interesting that you, you did actually research it. You got it to the point where <laughs> you're considering, you're still considering that's, that this might still be a game. Yeah. And then there just work. has to hit a point where you're like, like, oh shit. <laughs> eating maggots and getting a headshot automatically. I don't think this is going to be yeah. working after all. And the but fact you know that you, you make these Sorry, covers no. first is, is fascinating to me yeah. because one of these looks straight up like a, like a, a heavy metal band album cover. Uh, totally, yeah. <laughs> and the other one. And the, is... once again, the title always comes from something in the, um, in the, the conflict. So here the, the, the working title was Slayers on Sing. And that was a, uh, a Rhodesian slang for, you know, put your rifle on automatic. Slayer being the rifle and Sing being automatic. So oh, wow. put your Slayers on Sing, eh? And so that was there. That was where that comes from. <laughs> And I was like, oh, it's a bit ruthless. The whole war is like deeply seated in this kind of racism, uh, awful, awful things that happened in the Rhodesian War. And I was like, uh, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> so you're not cynical enough that you're going to try to put people through that experience. But you, uh, there's a part of yeah. you that wants to, uh, obviously was interested enough to do the research and, and yeah. try to find a way to make it into a competitive, <laughs> worthwhile experience. Yeah, and I think someone on TG did mention that it could probably still work if the players were cooperative against like a GM who was running the the African militia, the um the Fapla and Zandla forces. Um, I think that could that could potentially work. Um, but even then, you're just going to be shooting like random guys with AKs, and uh, I can't see it being that interesting like strategically or tactically. You can't you don't have a lot of interesting decisions to make. You just kind of move through a a, a village and kill everyone, and then mm. go home. I was like, uh. I want players to be making decisions and, and being forced to think things through, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no kidding. That's very interesting. But that was probably the biggest failure. That was probably the biggest failure of, of trip starting something and then realizing this isn't going to work. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> well, that's the reason why you want to do the real research too, I imagine, is to, yeah. is to not start biting off something that you're not going to end up being able to chew, setting a goal for yourself and getting really married to it and committed to it, and then you do research as you go. And then afterwards you find out, ah, wait, this is either going to be totally unrealistic, totally imbalanced, or, you know, something like that. Yeah. And asymmetrical warfare is always really interesting to try to represent. Um, but I thought this was just, it was just too asymmetrical that the, the Fapla and Zandla forces don't even have a chance of winning. I was like, oh, well, that's, that just makes it a bit shit. Like, whereas Soviet Afghan war, the Mujahideen did very well. They had a lot of successes. They, you know, peeled back Soviet units and shot down helicopters. And the same thing in Vietnam. Like, the Vietnamese did great stuff. There's Tet Offensive, and they were able to really hold their own. But in the Rhodesian Bush War, it's like, oh, nah, not really. So let's move on to the releasing of the game then. All right, yes, back to the cycle of game design. Okay, yeah, so you've got your rules pretty much done. You think they're pretty good. Then you release the game. Uh, ideally, you want to have a read-through before you do that. Just read through the whole thing, even if you, you feel like you've already seen the whole thing. Just, just for the love of God, just read through it, because <laughs> you'll find so many mistakes that you wish you had found before you released it. If you can get someone to proofread it, like uh, no, a parent or a friend or someone who is, who is interested in proofreading, 
which I, I suppose isn't very common, and I've never actually done that. But if you can find someone to proofread for you, that'd be amazing because I miss so many things. I am, you are your own worst proofreader. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think there's the a lot of, lot of validity to that, and I know that um, I have sort of a problem of, as I'm writing something, being too particular with how exactly it's worded and proofreading it as I go a lot. Okay. It sounds like you just sort of hammer it out, make it work, and and uh, uh, yeah, play test well, I it. To, and, I do try to always try to go back and reread sections and make sure they flow well. And there's a lot of like going back and editing. Uh, you go back and, and read a section and, and make sure it's worded properly and it flows well. And you do often have to rewrite things. If something's just a mess, you just have to delete the whole page and kind of start again. So, Well, judging I by the parts my, that you sent me, you've got some really great formatting skills. I mean, the the thing looks really professional, looks very... Like something you'd want to buy. Of, a lot of practice. Uh, my, my early games were like very crap and just white background and a shit font. Like that's how I started. <laughs> so it, it's just taken me, uh, whatever it is, five or six years to, to get to this point. It's all practice. And I'm sure my, my games don't look as good as some of the things I've seen in GDG where some people are like using like beautiful things like InDesign, um, and making really awesome looking games. Like mine are pretty, why not great? They have a nice background, but that's about it. Like yeah, everything else is just just fonts and. You know. Well, what tool do you use for uh, for actually constructing your? I use OpenOffice. You managed to do and everything sure, in OpenOffice. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people look down upon it and just thinking like, "What are you doing?" But I I know it and I I like it. Uh, and it's free. It's free to download. So that's what I use. Um, yeah. And I bet you could teach. You could pay people. You could charge money for a course on. Uh, on making what I saw in Open Office because I've yeah. I also use Open Office but I've never made anything that looks that good. I think it's just about getting the background in. Once you got the background in, it suddenly looks very professional. <laughs> um, and uh, I actually learned that from my um, colleague who lives in Poland. Who um, I, I was trying to get a background into a, a, a Open Office file and I just couldn't work it out. And he sent me an Open Office file where he'd already put the background in. And so this this guy's a programmer, so he knew exactly what he was doing. And so I actually learned the uh, the background thing from him. Um, yeah. So we all stand on the on the backs of giants, whatever it is, the the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And when you say release the game, obviously you had a venue in mind, I imagine, with this war game vault. Yeah. Um, to start with, the release the game thing never really occurred to me. I just wanted a good game I could play with my friends, um, and I didn't really think about publishing it or anything. Uh, and it wasn't until my friend Mikael in Poland contacted me about um, about Osfront. In fact, he uh, we met through Osfront. He had, he had um, found the rules somewhere. I think I posted them on TG like years <laughs> ago, and he'd found this rule set and had my email in it. And he con- he contacted me and said, you know, I want to help you um, get the army list more expanded. And and he kind of uh, spurred me on to to um, actually try and publish these things. And so I was just looking around trying to think where, where could I do this, and I. I must have Googled, you know, publish war games or something, and War Game Vault came up, and I just tested it out. I uploaded a few PDFs of some old rule sets I made. I think um, the New Zealand Wars and uh, Ikonki, which is a Russo-Japanese uh, land wars game, just to test oh. it out, see if it worked. And immediately people started buying them, and I was like, "What is going on?" That, that seems amazing. Yeah. That that's a shocker. Yeah, because uh, there is no New Zealand Wars game, and there is no specific Russo-Japanese land wars game. So these two games that I'd uploaded were quite niche already. Like, like living in New Zealand, I wanted to, I, I knew I had to game the New Zealand wars just because it's the only war that's really happened mm-hmm. in our country. So I knew I had to do that. And for some reason, I got interested in the Russo-Japanese land wars because my grandpa suggested it to me. He's like, 
oh, you know, the, the land wars are pretty interesting. And that from then I just kind of went along and tried to learn about it. Um, and so you yeah, put it out and it's like within however long people are actually testing it out, are they also giving you feedback? Is this, does the site? Uh, I didn't really get any feedback on those first two games. Um, so one guy uh, had some questions about EconKey because it wasn't really very well written. Um, and so I quickly like retyped it and put in a cool background because I was just learning how to do that thing. Oh right, and yeah. and I, I quickly like updated it and and I think it's a bit better. But the, both those games are still kind of hokey and New Zealand Wars is still on like a white background with like some crappy font. Um, it looks like a very much like a primitive word file. Um, I find it amazing yeah. that because you actually put something out though and you put it out there for other people to see, you managed to get through TG or, or wherever that this person who was interested enough. And because you put your contact information in there, you didn't mm-hmm. try to hide away and just leak out little parts of it or anything like that. Yeah, you yeah. actually got cooperation from people and you can start collaborating that can snowball into publishing it. The publishing, it can release into people buying it. The buying, it gives you feedback. And like yep, this whole exactly. chain of events starts with just putting something out there. Yeah. With uploading a PDF on TG and say, and say, or whatever it is, um, and someone making a, a 1D4 Chan page about it or, or whatever it is. Is, is that what it is? 1D4, 1D4 Chan? Yeah. 1D4 Wiki? It, it, something like that. 1D4 I think that's where he found the Osfront. In fact, I think I typed up the Osfront entry myself. I was like, yeah, hey, I'll make an entry on that or something and include the rules and whatever. And yeah, so. But yeah, you cheating. put a game out there. Cheating. I'm cheating. <laughs> yeah, you oh, got to cheat. you got to cheat where you can. <laughs> that's great advice, honestly, because there's people who are very timid who don't want to push you know for their own success really hmm. i think it's important to get your rules out there if you don't put them out there you're not going to get feedback um and you're not going to meet people who are interested in the same thing uh, if you just hide away with your special rule set for uh, 20 years that is and you don't show it to anyone like you're not going to have that community of people who know about the game and who are waiting for its, its release like i remember writing games and people are going you know when is this ready i, I want to play it or whatever um in fact when i was writing my chechnya game i think i had posted on like a a war games, modern war game page on Facebook that I was writing a Chechen wars game and immediately people were messaging me saying, you know, uh, when is this going to be ready? Um, and in fact, one miniature producer, um, got in touch with me and said, we'd like to link to, to this game on our site because there's no Chechen wars game. Oh, right. Um, because and, they're thinking we've just, we want to advertise what you could use these models for. Exactly. And there's no specific game for it. You can use things like force on force or other, um, skirmish games, but, um, there's no specific game for Chechnya, so yeah. Immediately people were messaging me, but just from cheering it on Facebook. So it's, I think it's important to um, get involved and, and find the cool groups on Facebook, even if you hate Facebook or whatever. Um, find forums, get out there. Like I always post on um, the War Games website. Uh, when I'm working on a new game, I'll post there and say, you know, I'm working on this game. Here's my email address. If you're interested, I'll send you a draft. Um, and often people will email me and say, you know, uh, I'm interested. Um, and I'll send them a draft, and they'll come back and say, well, this looks cool, but this doesn't work, and this isn't accurate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's really important to get it out there. Yeah, I know that for myself, you know, having started my game before I ever even considered releasing it, it was purely just a pet project, and mm-hmm. getting it to a point where I was interested in finishing it, but also still never planned on actually releasing it, it was pretty much okay. only going to TG and seeing the GDG threads and, and getting more involved with an actual community that... I felt like I could release the game too, that I started to decide, no, I actually want to finish this. And then since then, which has been like a year and a half or something like that, I've really okay. been much more focused on actually 
you know, getting it to a point where I can put something out and that's where, you know, you want to have feedback from real people have, you know, if they hate it or they like it, um, right. It can start a whole chain of events. Well, uh, what's the name of your, your game, by the way? Uh, it's going to be long view. It's a long view yeah, RPG okay. role playing interesting system. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm talking about it on GDG, you know, with people and, and discussing different parts, but there's also a problem in my case, uh, my, my workflow process. Like I see your cycle of game design here and it's different, obviously for, for different creators. Yeah. That's why it's my cycle of game design, not the cycle of game design. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but for myself, um, if I tell people a lot of my ideas as I'm working on it, there's a, just a part of my brain that says, I don't need to work on it anymore because I already got feedback. And I've done that in the past with okay. other projects. It's it's better for me to not have any validation and even have skeptics to say, you right. know, I don't think what you're doing is going to work. It drives me to actually finish it a lot more and make it better. But ah. at the same time, that, what's that? That is one thing you need to be careful with when, when you're receiving feedback is that it's not always going to be correct. And you do have to kind of, it's a fine balance between rejecting all feedback and just um, changing your game always based on the will of, of, of whoever wants to, to suggest something. You do yeah. have to have like a clear idea, don't you? And, and kind of filter out the things that will help the game or make it more accurate and reject the things that, you know, you've already decided against or, or that aren't going to add anything really to the game. It, it can be quite difficult to know which feedback to accept. Yeah, and that's one of the, the common patterns as I'm talking to different people. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast and see what are the common things that designers all sort of have to struggle with. And one of them is how receptive to be and how much to expose yourself. If you're a sensitive person and you're vulnerable to criticism, mm-hmm. you know, you it's a totally different process uh, than being somebody who's extroverted and who's willing to put themselves out there a lot. And right, yeah. you can still create you know, an amazing game, but the community that you expose it to and the people that you play test with, that kind of stuff has to be uh, more selective or you're just going to yeah. shatter on impact if somebody tells you that your thing sucks. I mean, obviously the best advice is to toughen up and get, get some thicker skin and... Yeah, and get it out there early as well. Like, um, like post straight away as soon as you have a rough draft or something and just say, you know, this is my idea. What, what do you guys think? And people will say, well, blah, 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 this doesn't work. Before you're too invested in it, before you have it, like, finished, uh, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Like, for myself, I have relatives that are interested in the projects I work on. So I can actually, okay. you know, ha- they've been getting updated on what I'm doing for all these years and supporting the ideas and giving feedback and stuff. So it's not like it's cool. a total vacuum. But releasing a draft on something like TG or GDG mm-hmm. any, at, at all these different points the process of actually writing down all these rules in a way that is like enough to be a first draft mm, is yeah. already the workload that I'm trying to avoid as I'm process, as I'm creating it because um, okay, unlike a, a board game or a, a war game, I'm imagining something like what I'm doing is like actually articulating and putting down all the ideas uh, is a monumental task. It's, but I can plan okay. and, and correct and adjust things very quickly with my scattered notes all over the place. It's just like doing like like lists of magic spells, lists of items, those kind of things? Yeah, like there's a whole lore okay. backstory uh, uh, to the world. And then if you if any of those parts are missing, if I put out a first draft, 
it just raises questions, right? It's like, well, yeah. why does this work that way? And why does that yeah. work that way? And it would, why does acid not melt things? Yeah. There'd be a whole, um, barrage of assumptions people would make because it's not a complete first draft. And of course, most RPG rule books end up being huge documents mm-hmm. uh, because you do have to tell people so much in order to cover all the bases. That's um, right. You, you do really have to be a writer as well as a game designer for fantasy, I think. It's, yeah. it's almost like you're doing two things at once. You're, you're writing a setting and a story and little micro stories every time you have to describe a race or whatever. Yeah, you're you doing have to do that a, at the a, same time as a game designer. It's difficult. You're creating a setting in which settings can be created, in which stories can be told. Yeah. It's like a meta setting of settings kind of thing. It's, it, it is quite that different. Scares me, yeah, that scares me so much. Like thinking about trying to create a fantasy world from scratch, I just like, whoa, that's, that's too much for me. It's too much. <laughs> but I, I love to hear that your design philosophy, you know, is so efficient because you do have these tighter scopes and you did also, you're aiming these things at, obviously, uh, judging by what you said, you know, you put out a game and immediately people are interested because nobody else has done that before. That's yeah. kind of, there's a deep, there's I a real wisdom to that. that. I think I really got lucky in that I, I'm interested in conflicts that no one else has written a game for yet. Um, I, I don't know how that happens. It, it just, um, it, it just does. It seems to. I mean, I've still written like World War One games. World War Two games, which have lots of rules for them, um, but uh, but I and a World War Two game probably isn't as popular as I'd like it to be. But it's such a saturated market that it's probably never going to be as popular as something, yeah, as as any other World War Two game. Yeah, I mean that Ostfront. Um, you said how many years of development was that? Uh, about five years. And you but had... we didn't have any plan to release it. We did, we just we just made this game for ourselves to play, and we kept adding to it and kept um, uh, refining it and playtesting. And so I'm interested. Started... I'm interested in that initial game, that Ostfront development, then, because uh, most of the people that I can think of on TG or GDG have never put out a game yet. So they're in that initial phase where they're not sure even if they want to release it. Can you okay. give any advice on that first game that you create? Any lessons you learned there that you would try to pass on? Um. Like, yeah, I'm not sure. I've never really took... planned to release these things. I think it, you just make sure it's fun for you and your friends to play. That should be like the really the core aspect. If it's fun for you, for you guys, um, then probably someone else is going to enjoy it too. Uh, you know, that's yeah, I guess... that that is actually yeah. really great advice, and I'm glad you said that because you know there is, especially I find on TG, uh, there's this sort of collective that makes thing makes decisions about games as if there's a consensus. Right, yes, and, yes. And people start designing around this consensus that is complete mm-hmm. bullshit. <laughs> you know, it's like if your friends, if five people can enjoy the game, you know, that you know of, you can extrapolate that, and that is a percent of the whole world's population that will... Yeah, it might be a very exactly. tiny percent, but it is scalable. If these people enjoy it, there's going to be more people that enjoy it, and then you don't yeah. have to worry about all the people who aren't even interested don't try to appeal to that that consensus yeah we're game designers we want to make something a game and a game should be fun i guess um i mean the games i like are fun so i mean some games probably aren't (laughs) as much fun i've heard people refer to advanced squad leader as um you know pouring through like hundreds of pages of rules that is the fun of advanced squad leader is pouring Hmm. through those rules supposedly up but i mean i'm probably wrong um but yeah 
it's got to be fun for you and your friends. I think that's the, the core starting point for, for a good game. Um, and if it's fun to you and it's something you're interested in, probably other people will be interested as well. You, you don't have to release a game. You don't have to put it online um, for people to buy if you don't want to. Um, but if you do, like, yeah, if it's fun, probably people will, will like it. And obviously having a good title and cover page is going to help as well. Um, if people see a game and it looks good and it has a cool title they can remember or something, that I think that's a really good selling point. <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds kind of um, uh, crap, but uh, that, that really is important. If your game has like a 30-word title and a front page that looks awful, and like no one's, no one's going to even open a PDF. I don't know. I love these. You know, compared to myself and some of the other people we've talked to on the podcast even, and definitely people that are in the uh, making the the systems in GDG and are just sort of trying to figure mm-hmm. out what they're making. They're not even sure. It's such a simplicity, a uh, simplicity to that design philosophy. It's a very pragmatic sort of wisdom. And as somebody who's like a chronic overthinker like myself, um, they're keeping it sort of basic with the, you know, make it fun for your friends, make it, f- yeah. and assume that if it's fun enough for you guys, then it's fun for somebody else out there and even that somebody would be willing to pay for it, which is inconceivable to some people when they haven't released anything yet. It was inconceivable to me too. When I first uploaded them, I was like, uh, nothing's going to happen. And straight away people, I sold like two or three copies and I was like, what, how can this have happened? I don't understand. I love these um, covers yeah, we, we, you're you know, sending. Yeah. So this is um, what happens. I do a draft and I have a title in mind for a game. Buddy Spike was what Missile Threat was originally called. And I had this this image of, like, these two F-16s and a blue background. And then what I did is I went away and I looked at other air combat games to see what they did. Every game had a blue background and green text, almost every game. And I was like, ah, okay, I need to do something very different here. And also, Buddy Spike is an awful name. And so I changed it. I, I changed my cover, my color to, like, gray. And this I used these, um, these kind of... Uh, like 90s picture of this um, uh, heads-up display, this this pink kind of flareish looking thing, um, and and made it look very different to every other air combat game, and gave it a snappy title. Um, finding the title is often very difficult because, um, in my opinion, it has to reflect the conflict and also tie into it somehow, uh, almost in a wordplay kind of thing. Like yeah. I, the one I'm probably most proud of is Hind and Seek, which is um, for the Soviet-Afghan war, like, the hind is their big, like, helicopter that is, like, yeah. the most famous helicopter of the war. And hide-and-seek just really reflects the whole idea of Mujahideen hiding in the hills and and um, Soviets trying to find them. So that, I'm so proud of that because it's like you have a pun, you have hind in there, you have hide-and-seek, which is what the conflict was like, and you have a hind pun in there, which is like, oh yes, God. I've got all three. <laughs> that is an accomplishment. So, yeah, yeah, the cover really is important, and that's why I stress. I try and go through a few different iterations, um, the same with the Chechen Wars, uh, if I can find the, let's see, my first cover was not great. And also, when you zoom out of a cover, it should still be readable. So if it's in a really a mm. tiny little picture, so like in TG um, a, as a, a thumbnail or something, it should still look good. Uh, and with Cornered Wolf, the first iteration had like a red font. And when you zoomed out, it just looked awful. It was, you can see it right now, oh, it's like yeah. grainy, it's like you can't see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, mm, that needs to change. So I changed slowly. I was like, I'll change the top, top text to white and maybe that'll help. But then the bottom part was still really blurry and awful. Oh, yeah. And I was, I, ch- I changed the picture as well. Uh, but then I was like, okay, that's it. It has to be all white. I'm sorry. I, I kind of have this cool red color. It's just got to be white. And then zoomed out. It looks great. You can see it. Um, your game's, um, image, I think is quite important. 
the title and image um, should I was be trying to talk, really the way. Yeah, I was trying to tell people about that just the other day on GDG. Is like people were asking about naming and how important it was to name something a certain way. And my argument mm-hmm. was that it's this is kind of a cynical way of looking at it, but in a way, naming can be even more important than your ideas. Totally. Yep. Because if you have the best ideas in the world, but your name just turns people off, it just, they won't penetrate and they won't stick. There's things that like GURPS is a great example of a game that probably a lot more people would try and not laugh at if it wasn't called GURPS. I immediately write it off because it's called GURPS and that is, that is the honest truth. It's probably cool. It's probably a great game, but it's called GURPS. No, that's it. Sorry. You're out. <laughs> yeah, and it's nobody cool. wants to say cool, but yeah. generic universal role-playing system. That No one's going to say that. Yeah. And, like, it sounds like burps, and it just, it's, just as a, it's just a dirty <laughs> title. I don't know. I mean, I'm, no offense to GURPS. I'm sure it's a great game, but I uh, just... Yeah. Well, go to a random stranger and ask them if they would rather play GURPS or Cornered Wolf, you know? They'd be like, well... What is this GURPS you speak of? <laughs> I don't know. You feel like it's weirdos who are beginning to play, play GURPS. Um, but I've found titles, three syllables is good. Huh. Um, I don't know why. It's like two syllables is, eh, it's, it's kind of like an entree, but, but three syllables is like, it's like a, a decent sized mains. Any more than three is like, uh, they're probably not going to remember it or something. So like missile threat three, hind and seek three, cornered wolf three, um, uh, Osrunt's two, so that doesn't really fit in, but Slayers on Sing is four, so, so it doesn't always work, but, but it's something to aim for, um, Econ Key is three, uh, The New Zealand Wars is like five or something, so that doesn't really work, but, but I mean, I found that three is good, it's a good kind of number to remember, um, but obviously your title isn't always gonna fit into the three syllables, so, but yeah, title is really important, and it can take you a long time, like, like I've shown here with some of these, like the early versions have different title completely. Yeah, the evolution uh, like, of the presentation. Yeah, yeah, and it, it totally changes, and you just keep tweaking that title and that cover page until it looks really good. Um, no, I find that probably... like it's, to me, it's a it's a completely different way than I would have thought of approaching it. So I find it very fascinating that you know you before you even properly design the game, you're coming up with this with image cover, yeah. that evokes something <laughs> for you as the creator. To look yeah, at. I don't know why I do that. I, I just I probably because while I'm researching, it's something quick and easy to do. You can kind of just whip up a cover in in Photoshop or, or in uh, I use Paint.net, which is like the the cheap version of free version of Photoshop. Um, it's something you can easily do. Is like, oh, I'll try and mock up a cover. And usually the first version is awful. Like air, the airstrike mock up I came up with was pretty average, and uh, I don't really like it. So I'll probably go back and try and tweak it again. It's something you can tweak as you go along, and maybe it'll come up with a better title than that um, during the research. Like. Uh, Missile threat came from, um, there's a list of like brevity words they use in the military. Like they'll say like, um, you know, uh, bandit, splash one bandit is like, you know, I shot down an enemy aircraft. Oh, or, yeah. um, Fox one is like, I just launched an infrared guided missile or whatever it is. And missile threat was, um, the, you know, incoming missile. And I was like, I, I read through this, this PDF of all the brevity words and took notes of which ones would be cool titles. And missile threat was almost like, yes, that's pretty good. I, I think I'll keep it. It it's sounds buddy spike. To me, the the, idea, the name Missile Threat is really does a good job of evoking the scope of the project because you're not saying it's one conflict or it's just this or that. And as your cover shows here, as I can see, you're using this sort of uh, iconic um, gauge that would be on a jet 
Exactly. But yes. the gauge actually reads 1960 to 2000, and the reading yeah, on the I'm gauge that, in the middle is air combat. So if you yeah. actually bother to read the gauge, you actually have a perfect uh, visual representation in a sort of a punny way. Yeah. No, I'm very happy with that title. Um, and I played a lot of S16 simulators and like flight simulators, so that's kind of where I got the idea. Um, usually you have some like a ticker in the middle that says like altitude or whatever, and it's tracking uh, uh, various numbers. And I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. I have my air combat um, tracking this 1960 to 2000 um, air area scope. So that's... yeah, I'm pretty happy with how that turned up. Um, I can see and how it really does define the game. Like it's all about missiles. That is the focus of the game. Whether they're coming from the ground or whether they're going to the ground or whether it's air to air, they really are what defines modern air combat instead of like just cannons, say in World War Two. I can see how. You know, developing that image, having something that evokes something strongly, uh, expresses something creative if you have, you know, and even gives you a chuckle if you have a, a pun or something creative like that. It's a little bit more motivation to, mm-hmm. to really get into it quickly and have something already right off the bat that you're proud of. Yeah, yeah. Um, it may not be ideal for everyone. Who, who don't have like graphic graphic design skills. Uh, personally, I don't really have graphic design skills. I just kind of learned them as I went along. Uh, I played in like death metal bands for many years, and then we had to design our own posters. <laughs> so that's kind of where my skills came from, having to like put together a poster for a gig or something. Um, and eventually, I just kept. And then also, I'm um, doing memes, uh, like you know, um, <laughs> photoshopping stuff for memes and stuff, or making a meme about whatever it is I wanted to make. Like th- those things helped my my um, skills. So everyone out there, make memes. Get, make some OC, get some original content in there, and yeah, it'll help your Photoshop skills. Man, if you hang around GDG, um, <laughs> you're a- after this, you're definitely going to be the go-to guy for so many different things. I guarantee it, because, oh, no. because these these uh, covers are are hilarious and and effective. And you've got yeah, I was, uh, learning how to do distressed text was a pretty good one. That's something you should um, find a, uh, a tutorial on distressed text. That's that what makes it look um like all the bits are missing and little like chaotic kind of like it's been Shift. worn away or something. Yeah, yeah. little kind of which um I didn't know how to do for a long time and I only just kind of recently worked out um in the last I don't know half a year or so. Yeah, I wouldn't and I, I wouldn't felt, know I how to that do that either. Hmm. Yeah. Uh I think we almost finished the cycle of game design, aren't we? Yeah, let's go let's go deeper into it because there's still some stuff left. Yep. So you release the game, then we have the three phases of release. And the first phases disbelief i can't believe it's over <laughs> yeah that's a so phase. you're like you've done all this work and you've released it you've pressed the button and you're like oh it doesn't feel real i i thought i was still working on it i, I don't know like people ask you at work like oh, how's it going i'm like i released the game and they're like oh how's it feel i'm like i don't know like, <laughs> it's okay i guess i'm not sure it doesn't feel real <laughs> like mm-hmm. i literally say that to someone like it doesn't feel real yet so yeah yeah i can see that's phase- the first stage where you Especially if it's been years, I mean. Exactly, yeah, it would feel unreal, wouldn't it? Like, oh my god, it's, it's, is it over? <laughs> like, uh, Missile Threat took me eight months, and that was a long time, considering I was working on it the whole way, and after that, I was just like, I, I can't believe it's over. I've been researching 40 years of air combat, and grinding every night, like, working out what the, what kind of missiles an yeah. F4C Phantom could, could hold, or whatever, and how fast it could climb, for like months and months and months and months and months. And then it was over, and I was like, oh. This is awesome. <laughs> What's next? Uh, the next phase of release is satisfaction. Woo! Released. So you're loving it. You've finished it, and that's awesome. It's, you're like, yes, it's released. 
get it out there. And um, this is probably the time where I'd like start spamming it in places and mm-hmm. I'd go to all the uh, various, I don't know, forums and say, yeah, I released it. Or go on Facebook and say, yeah, I released this. Go and read it. Go on um, Tabletop Gaming News. Any of the, any places that'll take you uh, for a release thing. And Wargame Vault and Drive Through RPG are great because when you uh, upload something, they automatically put it in their new files released kind of um, ticker, which everyone will see when they go to the front page. So straight away you have um, this kind of uh, visibility. People going to Wargame Vault or um, Drive Through RPG will see your your um, title right there on the new titles kind of ticker. Yeah, and you know that there's people who have basically seen everything, and that's the only part of the site they're interested in anymore. Right, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, a new thing. Oh, that's cool. I'm interested in that. I'll buy it. And that's and also, then, I'm imagining, where that that iconic cover and title really helps out. And it's probably why you sell games exactly uh, as soon yes. as you release yep. them, whereas so many other people, and I, I, I can see it so clearly now, they, they develop a system that, you know, might be way more advanced than yours or something, and they're mm-hmm. they're in the same race as you are in a sense. They're in the competition. If they don't yeah. have something that looks better and sounds better than what you put out, it doesn't matter. Like wh- whatever they put out is going to be overlooked. Yeah, the, I can't stress how important the title and cover page are. Um, if you want to sell something, I guess um, it's not really the the goal for me to sell things. But uh, if you if you can do a good title page, it does does help. It helps to get it out there. I found that if you take your title page and then zoom way out to about the size that it appears on, like, Drive-Thru RPG or Wargame Vault, which is quite small. It's kind of, like, a smaller than a box of matches. Like, And you right. can still read the title, and you're probably you're probably good. Hmm. Very good advice. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. Do we go to the last stage of release? Sure. Okay. The last stage is feedback starts coming in. Depression. So many mistakes. So many edits to make. And this is, like, someone's bought your game. They've written you a 10-page email saying... You know, you missed all these spelling errors or grammatical errors. Um, you you put the wrong caption on this um, image, whatever it is, and you're just like, oh my god, I've I fucked up so bad. What have I done? <laughs> Man, yeah, yeah. you got to have. I'm guessing that's a good reason to tell people this ahead of time because there'd be some people who'd panic in that situation. But totally, yeah, they're just like, okay, that's it. I, I'm over. I'm deleting everything. I, I was never meant to be a game designer. Like, I failed or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> But you really just have to grit through and, and be like, oh, yeah, that's okay. That's, that's fine. I'm not perfect. Personally, uh, my proofreading is awful. There'll be like, even today, I'm still finding problems with missile threat. Some guy's trying to translate to French, and he's finding all these little minor things like, you know, the, the, twice. Something oh, you can never catch yeah. in a, in a um, spell check or um, maybe even not in a grammatical check. See, that's um, hilarious because, that. you know, at the same time, even though it's like that's a lesson on how you should, you know, go back and check afterwards – in a sense, I find that to be a big relief, the way that you explain it, because it sounds like the worst case scenario is that you get feedback and then you go fix it. Like, nobody's, Yeah, that's, that's, that's all it is. Yeah. You're not going to get crucified for it. It's just, you no. know, the, the feedback comes in and then you fix it. Yeah, I go through and fix it. And uh, with each of these games, I've done maybe four versions. So I, I fix a lot and then I really update and I fix a lot and then I update. And I, I just keep going. I try not to do it too regularly because people don't like getting spammed emails all the time. Hmm. But if enough has changed, I'll, I'll release a new version. And that's where Wargame Bolt and uh, Drive Through RPG are really great. You can just update every customer who's bought the title will automatically get updated the new version if you want them to, uh, and and get an email saying this has been updated. Yeah, and you can that's... even write a little a little note to them saying, you know, I changed this rule, I fixed some typos, um, uh, Sam sites now 16 inch range or whatever it is that you've changed. So you can get the little change log. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole strain of thought 
in GDG of uh, sort of a, a paranoia and and uh, intensity of like anxiety, I guess is what it is uh, about you know people wanting to hire uh, expensive editors and stuff to make right. sure they proofread everything and because you can tell they are they're used to or they at least imagine an environment that's going to be extremely harsh if they release something and it's not perfect. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, even like um, like editions of Dungeons and Dragons or like professional games will still have errors in them, so you're never going to get it 100% perfect, especially as a like a individual, um, what do you call it, like an indie developer or whatever. You're not going to get it perfect. You just try your best. That's where it comes through um, where you should really try and read through the whole thing just from start to finish. Even if you, you're pretty sure it's perfect, just read through read through slowly and try and make sense of each sentence um, and you'd be surprised how much you actually catch when, when you do that so I guess the the advice then to take from that I would definitely say is be careful not to overly obsess about you know to the point where you're hiring somebody for hundreds of dollars or something to read through a, yeah. four, a 400 page document and you know give you all this professional feedback and you end up you know who knows how much that costs yeah, that's that's difficult. I mean, it would be great if we could all hire proofreaders. I mean, I wouldn't say don't do that, but I mean, uh, do you really want to spend four hundred bucks on a game that that may not ever make that much money back? I mean, uh, up to you really. If you're really rich, fine, hire all the proofreaders you want, <laughs> hire all the editors. But um, most of us uh, can't, don't have that luxury. Um, but yeah, just read through it yourself and and go really slowly. Um, I, I find it really hard to do because I've written it and I just want to skim through and see if anything's wrong. And after a few like months of working the rule set, you almost can't see it anymore. It kind of glazes over in front oh, of you. you absolutely. Just down and you're like, ah, oh, this. I, I can't actually see the the details anymore. They call that uh, becoming page blind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the page blindness is real. It so, is. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And if you really wanted to take your time, you could, you know, think you've finished it. Then don't release it. Just leave it for a couple of weeks. Leave it for a month. Then come back and read through it. And that's when you really be like, ah. Oh, that's wrong, that this is, I've got the twice in there, whatever it is. Or if you're yeah. me, you'll be you'll like, hmm, I need to rewrite everything. <laughs> yep, into, into the trash it goes. <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. It's not because there's That's small, tough. like, grammar errors. It's because I'm just like, I could explain this better if I wrote it again now. I'll yeah, have a totally that, different... Fine. If, if you have to, like, you know, delete a paragraph and rewrite it, that for, in the sense of clarity, that's perfect. It's, you want it to be clear in the end, and, and sometimes the delete key is your best friend for clarity. Um, just start from scratch, and, and you'll, you've already written it a couple times, then you'll have a really clear idea of exactly what you want to say, and you can just like type it out uh, much clearer. You probably don't have this problem, but I know one thing that I've had to kind of come to terms with is my, my work process is all in uh, notes, like physical notebooks and stuff like that. Okay. That's how I plan stuff, and then when it gets to the point where I'm either happy with it or I just know I need to transcribe it to a computer and have it saved in cloud storage okay. or I'm going to lose it. I'll type mm, stuff. I'll type stuff out and I find that once I start typing because of how fast and convenient it is to type, um I end up writing way more than I needed to and okay. what I end up doing is exploring ideas through writing it and I'll write just way oh. more than you would ever even want to put into <laughs> the final rules. Right. And then I go back, you know, and I, I know that that's not going to be the final rules. I just know it, and, but I'm I'm writing it all out, and then when I do decide I'm going to try to condense it into a, a proper document, then okay. I go and I take the parts that are necessary and I, 
I, I just take the best of it or the, the most essential parts of it. And I try to, con- I try to yeah. condense that, it. That can down. be difficult though, trying to condense from like a large wall of text. Um, trying to condense it down. It, like it's, it's difficult to just delete a, a sentence here and there. Like ideally you want to kind of delete the whole thing and just retype it with a more clear idea in, in your mind. Well, that's what I mean. It's like okay, uh, right, not, not condensing in the sense of removing bits and pieces of it, but retyping it with sort of the distilled wisdom or or point of what i'm trying to make and then really concern myself in that last you know documentation stage of right what the what the reader wants to know and what the reader cares about and how much i'm straining their attention because one of the biggest pet peeves i have with uh in role-playing games is i've read different books and downloaded pdfs Mm -hmm. and whatever is this sort of formatting that just test your patience and it's like as a player uh, it's yeah you know you can tell the writer is having a hell of a time describing all these different things and sort of uh showing off what they've all come up with but right brevity is really important when you're actually trying to communicate something to a new audience and there's a sort totally. of almost a it's almost a political thing in role playing games where, you know, what is the book? How should a book be laid out? It's a very controversial uh, okay. topic. Right. And yeah, in the end, you're right. We do need to reference this thing in game. So making it easy to read and easy to know where things are is, is a real challenge that I'm sure I am nowhere near kind of uh, mastering. But um, I think writing by hand is a good way to limit yourself to start with. Like I do a similar thing. I, I'll, I often have a lot of spare time at work, so I'll write something out by hand on a bit of paper. Like these two I've just linked here. So yeah, I see those. The, modern air combat game pretty much the 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 core of it like you know how things are going to work um and then i pretty much do do the same thing as you I'll, I'll just type a lot and get all the ideas out and then often have to go back and delete and retype that kind of thing so yeah but even on your notes here i see you sort of setting down the headers having very yeah clear... exactly i'm still working to kind of basic headings and you know what does the player need to know like um aircraft types uh actions weapons how things work um, this, yeah, uh, obviously in a word processor, you can swap things around. So here I have like, um, deployment and turn structure on the second page, whereas really that should be w- far earlier. Mm, right. Um, I remember someone, someone bought one, one of my games and said that the, like the turn structure was hidden away on page 18 and that was a really bad thing. And so from then on, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put all that stuff right at the start, you know, what the game is, how to play, how to, how the turns work, that kind of thing. Keep that up right up front. Yeah. I love hearing that because it also means that. You know, you put something out, somebody gave you that feedback, you learned from it, and now you haven't done it again. I mean, it's... Yeah, exactly. That's what feedback should be all about. Um, You've done something wrong. That's okay. Nobody's perfect. Let's fix it and try to do it again next time. <laughs> yeah, the the hypercritical yeah. nature of, of 4chan's discussion boards and, uh, and the yes. people who will try to, you know, totally discredit you because one thing wasn't perfect... Uh, I hate when people internalize that too much and they, they don't understand that that's not actually your target audience. You know, that your target audience yes. wants to help you make a better game. Although I think I did write an on 4chan RPG one stage where the 4chan would have probably been the, the target audience. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. that was uh, it's ago. good if you can have a, a clear... But you're totally right. Yeah. 4chan is a very strange and uh, unusual place. Yes. That's all I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) We we all know what I mean. Yes. Um, but there's, there is a community. Obviously, GDG is, I don't know if you know this, maybe not even, but you know, 
No, no, of course you do because you were always in those threads. That's you what know the this? GDG Discord is born out of the PG Discord, which is born out of the the four chan oh. thing. So it's a I'm almost I'm everybody who's the GDG uh, Discord. Like I only joined I think yesterday or something. So I'm not really I don't have many game design discords at all. Most of my stuff is like. Uh, like Doom and Quake mapping, that kind of stuff. Other things I do in my spare time. We do have an Oshman Publishing Discord, though. So, yeah, there, there is that. Well, we'll have to have a link to that. People can... Yeah, I'll um, try and find a link at some stage. Yeah, but the uh, the community... Theoretically, you could have you know your own community. You set up after you release things, a, a forum. Facebook yep. is, is obviously a smart move if you have the time and energy to do that. I think if somebody's doing this just as a yeah. hobby, I kind of find it's, it... It's- it's quite easy to set up a page. Like it's not. It'll only take you five minutes to set up a page, put a picture on. That's all you need to do, really. Like, have a title and a brief description. It's, it's quite simple. Yeah, that's true, and it it does automatically connect you to obviously the whole world's um, yeah. people. And there's... I mean, I try to have a lot of options. Like we have a. I used a free forums. Uh, what is it? Uh, Freeforums.net. You can make your own forum. So we have an Ostfront uh, publishing forum, which is like incredibly dead like just pretty much me and my polish friend post there mm. and maybe one other person two other people so it's a it's a wasteland but um, at least it exists if someone does have a question they can at least go there well i'm sure after this uh, there's going to be a lot more people sooner or later who uh, are going to hear this or at least there's going to be some people who are going to come by and they're going to be nagging you constantly yeah someone will come and troll us and post a whole lot of shit or whatever <laughs> so hopefully we'll see we'll see <laughs> the forum will be shut down the next day <laughs> exactly. It got DDoSed. Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty much the end of the cycle of game design, isn't it? Yep. It oh, says yeah, no, after wait, there. Feedback loop, isn't there. So you get feedback and make edits based on feedback, then release the new version. And then you go through the three phases of release again every time you release a new one. I can't believe it's over. Oh, my God, it's over. Oh, shit, the feedback coming in. Oh, I, f- I fucked up so hard. Oh, my God, so many edits to do. You just keep doing that until... Until you make no more edits, and then you know it's over. When no one's sending you emails, or or no one's asking you to edit something. Yeah. Yeah, and then you're out of the game design phase, but you you essentially enter the promotional or support or some other kind of phase you could do after yeah, I've that. Yeah, usually, I've usually put the the promotion stuff into the 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 kind of the middle of the three phases of release, or somewhere around where you release the game. That's usually where we do all the promotion. Mm, right. Um. Because you want to promote the shit of it as soon as it comes out, um, just to get it, uh, I don't know, just, just to get it out there. And that yeah. way you'll have more people giving you feedback. Yeah, you're promoting it um, not as a beta test or anything like that, but just knowing that the promotion and the feedback are, in a sense, they go hand in hand. Yeah, exactly. The more you promote, the more people will play, the more feedback you'll get. And even like uh, established game companies... Also, we'll use this, that they know that when you release something, that's when you get your most valuable, valuable feedback and valuable playtesting. So, yeah. It's not just us us small-time guys who kind of um, release a pseudo-beta and call it finished. Um, even though it's, it's we think it's finished, but we, we, once it hits the public, uh, <laughs> people often fun. say, well, you mislabeled this caption there, buddy, or whatever it is. Yeah. Wow. That is a lot yeah. of very good advice. And then, yeah, the last phase is free time. Whoop. That's it. You're done. Yeah, and then when you Until get... Until you read a book. <laughs> that's what I... new interesting conflict, and you're like, hmm. That's that why it becomes a cycle, game. is that you get... Yeah. You get sucked back in. Oh, dear. And that, that's a great a great chart I think a lot of people could learn from, and considering how many people... There are a couple guys on GDG who are actually working on, you know, miniature war games, mm-hmm. and 
But even otherwise, I think there's a lot there that you can apply to if you're making a card game, a board game, uh, an RPG, whatever. It's just good advice. Yeah, uh, probably the whole getting interested in a conflict of period could be replaced with um, make an interesting setting, I guess, would be what you would replace it with if you were making a fantasy game. Mm-hmm. Uh, just replace that with, yeah, make an interesting setting, I guess. So that's the, the dual writing and game design that you have to do with fantasy, which is why it's so much more difficult than historical war games, in my opinion. Yeah, it is probably a lot more difficult, but, um, you know, if that's... Like, I wouldn't be able to do a historical... First of all, I, I don't research those things, but even if I did, I would only be inspired to make my own fictional version of them. Like, right, okay. As soon as I get interested in a subject, I'm like, how can I make my own spin on that that's fictional? Oh, yeah, uh, okay. That's... that's cool, that's cool. Like, I mean, this is still, like, it's something you enjoy. Like, uh, I don't know, it's uh, like a stalker-style thing where it's kind of based in reality, but it has this fantasy kind of science fiction thing going on. Yeah, like, like people I... really love that kind of stuff. They love it. So there's no reason not to, I mean... I can't. Could be. I can't help it. Even if I wanted to make uh, a, a representational, faithful recreation of something, it would become fictional by the end because my brain is just always <laughs> trying to put a twist on something. And okay, but uh, uh, I think it's it's the combination of realism and fantasy that can often have really effects. Like, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is based on like you know hacking someone with a sword and shooting crossbows. They're all like real weapons, but then you combine magic. And uh, healing and stuff like that, and it becomes very interesting. It's that combination, um, which is often why historical war games. There's not, there's only the the conflict. If you're not interested in the conflict, then you're not going to be interested in the game, really. Um, whereas things like fantasy settings, you can kind of um, chop and change a bit. You could have a a really realistic D and D setting, or really um, magic heavy, or whatever. You can kind of customize it a little bit. Yeah, it's a much more about expressing yourself and sort of getting people into a immersed into a a world kind of idea. Um, yeah. Obviously there's trade-offs there where you're not going to probably make it quickly and you're probably not going to make a bunch of different versions uh, in succession because you're just trying to develop this one thing constantly. Right, yes. uh, so people have obviously know which side of that dichotomy they're interested in as a designer. Mm-hmm. But either way, I think this process has a lot of applicable points. And as somebody who's actually put out stuff that people buy and, and, and have given feedback on, I think that's like infinitely more valuable than the armchair wisdom of people who have never actually put out something. And they're yeah. still talking as if they know the creative process inside and out. Yeah. It's, it's cool to listen to, to fortune and to, to friend and forums, but um, I find it's really, when you get those like 10 page emails from someone who knows exactly what they're talking about, and there's already a respected person in the field. That's when you're like, okay, I've got to pay attention now. This is the real shit. And I'm always <laughs> feel so, so um, honored to to actually have these people email me at all. Like, um, usually I'll send them a, a copy of the rules and be like, there's no way they're going to reply, let alone give me any feedback. And then they do, and I'm just like, wow, this is this is incredible. I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. Well, I feel very lucky to have you on the show. I'm glad that you can, you reached out, and uh, this has been a great discussion. I want to have you back on down the road sometime yeah. a month or two from I'm now or come back on yeah yeah thanks for having me uh richard it's great uh there's one thing that is missing from games i think is uh historical role-playing games there is almost nothing so in the future if someone out there wants to write one i think that could be a good area people could expand into historical rpg exactly yep and you can yeah. add fantasy if you want to but yeah that's that's my that'll be my my ending um remarks <laughs> all right I think that's a perfect way to end it because there's 
definitely going to be people who, who are going to be asking you for advice and, and, uh, I'm sure you're going to get people buying your games, trying, trying them out and seeing, especially in or, something or like. Or not buying them, realizing how much of a, like, um, kind of, uh, a mess I've made of like, you know, my editing and, uh, proofreading. They'll be like, well, I better avoid that guy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, well, could go both ways. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've seen a little bit of it and it looks pretty great. Maybe you've only shown me the good bits, but. <laughs> All right, we're going to cut it off here. We're going to have you back on sometime in the future, and I really appreciate you giving us, you know, two and a half hours of discussion here that's really valuable for people who are interested in getting into game design or are stuck at some point in the process and can see and hear firsthand uh, what it takes to really finish it and, and a healthy mentality to approach it all in. Yes, no problem. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, uh, Richard. Very good. All right, see you. See, I told you it'd be great. On this podcast, I want to talk to every kind of game designer there is in the tabletop space. And I'm really interested in guys like Tom who know exactly what they're doing. And you can watch it right now. And you go to GDG and you you see he's coming up with a new idea. And you can just sort of see it falling into place so rapidly, you know, testing something and it fails. Well, okay, then he changes something and he makes it work and the next thing you know, it clicks, and then he just starts running with it, and he doesn't overcomplicate it. And obviously, there is something very different about a simpler board game or war game, as opposed to a really abstract RPG kind of thing. But I think there's still so much to learn from that sort of mentality, and if and the whole plan around it, the strategy that you approach it with, you can get a lot of helpful advice from a guy like that in the description of this episode on the patreon and and wherever else this might be hosted uh, hopefully they include it there's an imager link where he you can find all the stuff that he was sending to me as we were talking all the different uh images of different rules and things like that that really helped to to illustrate what his point was including the whole picture of his diagram of the the theory of game design or the cycle of game design that he had so make sure you actually check that out and look at the resources that he's sharing there. I, th- I think that's very valuable. Can't underestimate, you know, that sort of behind the scenes look at somebody who's sort of figured out what their process is. And I have to say, as an aside, uh, Tom sent me, you know, some recommendations of things to read and authors who really sort of had a great talent for writing rules. And when I followed up on it and I read some of the stuff it really did help me understand, you know, a different approach to designing rules that doesn't sort of fall into the modern hand-holding mentality, but has a, a much more mature and sophisticated style. And I've already started to adapt things from from that material into the way that I'm writing my rules. So, I mean, just changes like that can really affect how you think about game design, how you think about rule writing and handbook writing and organizing information. So, what I'm trying to say is listen to this guy and uh, get involved in this discussion because you might find it actually just improves your game overnight.